Hi, I'm reporting from the Eye of the Stone. <laughs> Put away your Polaroid and listen to the Uncut Gems podcast, a weekly show where we talk about movies nobody else wants to talk about. This is episode number 88 and my name is Jakob. And my name is Randy. And today we also have a special guest. By the way, Nick is not with us today, but you know, <laughs> you've, you've noticed he hasn't introduced himself. Um, we have a special guest. A warm welcome to Sarah Badri. How are you doing, Sarah? Hi, I'm very well, thank you. And... Any excuse to talk about Roy Scheider, I'm there. <laughs> Doing <Perfect>. handstands. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Anyway, before we start, like, we kind of have to address the elephant in the room because, you know, like, well, if, if you're listening to this, I can you, you, you listen to Randy say, Hi, I'm Randy. It's like, this, he's not going coming through his regular mic. I think we just need to kind of just, I, I, I normally don't, don't do this when I listen to podcasts, they kind of always is a pet peeve of mine when people just go in their personal stuff for like 15 minutes at a time and just like, I, I don't, I, yeah, I'm not interested in your, in, in your, you know, I don't know, take a trip to your bank or whatever. But I think this is something <laughs> we need to kind of touch on because um, we've been planning and rescheduling this recording for a few days now because, well, some, some of us in the room have had, have survived a hurricane. So Randy, can you, can you just re- relay some of the news from the front? Sure. Yeah. So, some of us is is me. I live in Atlantic Canada, and uh, this past weekend, I don't know the days all run together. What would it have been? <laughs> the eighteenth, twenty third, maybe. Anyway, uh, Hurricane Fiona uh, came through Atlantic Canada and and made a, a right mess of Atlantic Canada, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, and Newfoundland. I live in Prince Edward Island, and my communities so this is almost five whole days out i'm going to say 110 hours or so not that i'm counting i don't have electricity so uh very good friends of mine they uh, opened their home up to me and uh, i am at their place they have electricity although their internet got dodgy about an hour or so ago so um and being the silly fool that i am i forgot to bring my mic with me <laughs> my headphones so i've got a brand new set of equipment that I'm not really getting to work correctly, but I'm here and this is a thrill to me because I have been chopping down trees and clearing brush and playing games in the dark with my kids to entertain them. And I've been reading books. So, you know, that's, that's fun and exciting. Um, you know, it's been a very eventful and and rough week. Like at the end of the day, um, my family and my home, we're all safe and we have a number of trees down, but you know, a lot of people in the community are, are suffering a lot worse. So, um, you know, I'm fine. And, you know, this is just a delight to, uh, you know, be here with you guys. Uh, so yeah, that's what I'll say about that. Um, you know, yeah. Thank you too, for your, your concern along the way, because Jakob was dropping messages, uh, you know, every so often, how you doing? <laughs> What's going on? Haven't heard from you. So like internet has been dodgy. I never really thought that would be the story. <laughs> I, I knew the electricity was going to be in peril, but, uh, you know, here we are with, uh, you know, outages to 
uh, you know, the, the cell networks and, and even the, you know, established landline networks. It's, it's been, yeah, very eventful. The worst such weather event that I've, I've lived through. So, but we're not here to talk about me. I'm happy to do it. And thank you for your concern. I'm really excited to have Sarah here and uh, move on with our <laughs> first our first meeting of the Roy Scheider fan club. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll say that. We'll put it that way. Well, yeah, the, uh, the executive, the executive com- committee is, uh, is, in, you know, is, is present um, before we go. Uh, I think we should we should actually say something that you know like you say oh I've been reading books what book have you been reading like in the apocalyptic times post Fiona I've been reading Cormac McCarthy's The Road <laughs> I I know and you know in the I read this book which is whatever it is three hundred pages in record time like a day and a half and as I was reading this you know apocalyptic journey about uh, a father and his son just trying to make their way somewhere somewhere safe and they come across all kinds of atrocities and they're experiencing shortages of fuel and just don't know what the people that they see in the road will be expecting of them. Yeah, this is what I read. Uh, But, you know, I come from a place where my neighbors are really good people and everyone sort of bands together. So uh, the only real similarity I had with the characters in uh, uh, Cormac McCarthy's book, the only real uh, similarity I had honestly was that uh, you know without showering I I feel a little bit stinky. Well, <laughs> but I cleaned no- up for Sarah, so I did shower today. <laughs> I got a clean shirt. You know, I try to oh, you know do things right. Well, you know. It's a- <laughs> But yes, that that book has been on my my wife loaned me that book. Randy, you'll like this, and it's been on my. <laughs> my my night table for about a year and a half and i said okay well finally now i won't be distracted by anything i'll just read so anyway i got through that and i'm clearing out a few other things that have been told to read so my uh yeah my literature pile is is dwindling a little bit which is great wow (laughs) i mean i will say that you know well i I suppose your your community is going to take a little bit longer to descend into cannibalism (laughs) we're not there yet not, not even it was, close. It was, it was touch and go before they announced there's plenty of fuel. Don't worry. Fuel stations will be online soon, but we've got plenty. It's just about getting power to the gas stations and the petrol stations. Everyone calm down. Because, well, you know, I wouldn't be able to say the same about my community. I, I live in Maidenhead and they all look all, you know, like all doled up and fancy, but I think like three days is all I give them. <laughs> yeah <laughs> like once once waitress runs out of wine like these people will be feral <laughs> <laughs> nothing left to live for <laughs> yeah coffee like, shops could, going I mean, online you know, was like a this, big deal no it's 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 not but <laughs> you know these people are not used to strife like I live in a neighborhood where once a week there's, I think they're like down the, down the river from me, there are people living in like proper mansions. They have like Harrods deliveries, grocery deliveries from Harrods. Wow. <laughs> I never knew that Harrods delivers. <laughs> but they do. But they do. <laughs> Maybe that was a, a pandemic innovation. 
I've been to Harrods once and I, I saw like an apple was two pounds and I said to myself, well, no, I'm not buying an apple from a lovely apple, by the way, lovely looking apple. I think personally hand polished. I <laughs> uh, felt so inadequate in this place. I think the uh, security people also thought that. But anyway. <laughs> it's just, anyway. anyway, we're not here to talk about my shopping. Uh, or lack thereof or um anyway so before actually we before we go quick plug this episode is part of a double bill or let's just call it a triple bill because it's a collab so we're talking about elmore leonard adaptations and uh as a as a result so this is episode number one we're talking about 52 pickup and then next week we're going to be talking about um out of sight and then this is in collaboration with nick's show the death by adaptation you should totally listen to him as well and we've recorded this episode already, but it's coming out in a week's time, I think. So it's going to coincide with our Out of Sight episode, uh, episode here. We talked about uh, Jackie Brown, which arguably would be probably the most prominent uh, Elmo Leonard adaptation that there is. And also happens to be one of my favorite films. So I had to be on there as a guest because uh, I, uh, I wouldn't be myself. Anyway, so that being said, co- full complement of uh, September episodes is on our Patreon, patreon.com slash uncutgemspod. And I'm an absolute ding-dong because I've almost failed to give Sarah a shout-out for joining <laughs> our little flock. <laughs> uh, you're an absolute hero. And um, I need to, I still need to figure out how to uh, how to work the Patreon to actually subscribe to yours. Because <laughs> so, I'm like, I need <laughs> to set up like a se- separate account just for myself. Because they're like, I don't, I don't know how to do this. Because now, now it's just for, through Uncut Gems. Like, do you want to subscribe to this? Like, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know. Can I? <laughs> As a creator, do, can I do this? I don't know. I need to figure this out. <laughs> so I just, <laughs> so I figured, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wait this out, see what happens. But anyway. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, money's forthcoming. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> Thank um, you. That's very kind. <laughs> well, you know, like, I have to support my favorite show. You know, come on. <laughs> so, uh, it's a good podcast. Yeah. It's so a good podcast. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> Uh, yeah, also in October on our Patreon, you can actually expect our David Lynch marathon to continue. We'll be talking about Mulholland Drive. Um, so that, but that's coming towards the end of the month, I think. And then in the meantime, we'll be sprinkling. There's not going to be a retrospective this month because these are a little bit more difficult to kind of just schedule. Uh, but there'll be two bonus tie-ins and they'll be kind of Halloween related. So towards the end of the month, we'll be talking about Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 on the regular show. And then it just makes sense to do to talk about the original. So we'll be talking about the original on our Patreon. And then as, as a second time, well, the week after that, we'll be talking about uh, Luca Guadagnino's Suspiria. So we're going to be talking about Dario Argento's Suspiria as well. Because why not? More <laughs> red is is good for everyone. And then that concludes uh, the uh, intro shenanigans. We're 15 minutes in. This is officially this is something that I never, I, ne- I never like doing because it's like, well, we should be talking about this movie already, but we're not. So let's just talk about 52 Pickup. Where's Cindy? No talking during the show. You've seen some of this before, Mitch. Stuff your girlfriend shot. Las Palmas Hotel, Palm Springs, August 17th through 21st, while your wife thought you were in a convention in Miami. You rascal. Now here you are shooting abroad. Nice little body. Mm. Great tits, what do you think? Hot shit hotel, two bills a day. It's a very jazzy outfit. Ooh, that's a jazzy outfit too. 
So 52 Pickup was directed by John Frankenheimer. I almost said Frankensteiner. <laughs> uh, and stars Roy Scheider, Anne-Margaret, John Glover, uh, Vanity, Clarence Williams III, and uh, Kelly Preston and a few other people. And, um, and it's a dark, dark neo-noir tale about a successful businessman whose name is Harry Mitchell. I all, like Even I read the book and I, for it, halfway through the book I realized his name is Harry because everyone calls him Mitch. But anyway... <laughs> And he finds himself extorted by a trio of gangsters uh, who tr- threaten that they would expose his love affair with a much younger girl to the press and ruin his wife's prospective po- political career. And uh, events escalate from there because we all know Roy Scheider does not take any prisoners. So the, fo- the film was based on a 1974 novel by Elmore Leonard. And that, that was, I think, I, don't, I think it was like sixth or seventh adaptation of his, of his work. And that was just about after, I think. Uh, written just after Mr. Majestic. Uh, anyway, and weirdly enough, it's not the first adaptation of this book because um, in 1984, Elmore uh, Leonard was hired to write an adaptation for uh, the canon folks, uh, Golan and Globus, who wanted this book to be adapted in, in well, and set in Tel Aviv in Israel. So he wrote this screenplay called The Ambassador. And, that, and then we wrote two drafts. They didn't like it. So they hired another guy who rewrote it extensively. So if you actually watch this film, you can realize how little was left on the uh, of the original material and how how little these two films have in common. Actually, it would be a fascinating episode in its own right, but I just watched it because I, because of, because it's homework. I don't know. And then the film was directed by J. Lee Thompson, so he was a British director, was kind of sort of like a Hitchcock minor, I want to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it was starred Robert Mitchum, Rock Hudson, and Ellen Burstyn. So just it's on YouTube if you want to watch it. <laughs> um, anyway. And then he was Leonard. Apparently, was credited for. Then he was paid for this, even though he's not even he's not technically credited. Uh, so he no, well, he's not technically a screenwriter on this film. Anyway, so uh, the adaptation was re- revisited two years later, and still by canon. And then weirdly enough, this was a coincidence because John Frankenheimer read the book and he thought to himself, like, I want to make a movie like this, and he decided I want to option this book. And then they find out that canon people had the rights to the book, so he reached out to them and they made the movie. Uh, they moved the uh, setting from Detroit to LA because it was budgetary sort of constraints sort of involved. Uh, it was cheaper to uh, to film to film outside of Detroit. And then there's a there's a few other adjustments that they made to the plot, um, but we'll, we'll get to it later anyway. And then the film was released kind of sort of to a mixed reception because some critics really hated it, like Patrick Goldstein just really hated it, and so in in LA Times. And um, he called it dull and just completely just un- uninteresting film. And he really didn't like anything about it. And meanwhile, Ebert loved it, praised John Glover as the as the most extraordinary vi- villain of the year. We'll get to it. And Janet Maslin, 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 ne- never know. She called it a lurid, exploitative, and loaded with malevolent energy film. And that Frankenheimer did not direct anything this good since Black Sunday. And I agree. <laughs> uh, so. Let, how, where do you stand on this? Are you with Roger Ebert on this? Are you with uh, are you with Patrick Goldstein, or are you with people who did not care at the time? Because the film has since kind of just descended into a little bit of obscurity, and uh, now now I think it, you can call it it's a cult film because it has its it has its defenders, but it still evades the sort of spotlight of the main of mainstream recognition. So do you think it belongs in there or do you think it belongs in the darkness? Sarah, how about you start? How about you start and tell us what you think about 52 Pickup? Yeah, so I mean, obviously as a president, CEO, uh, whatever else I am, titles of the Roy Scheider fan club, 
this was a film that sort of was on my radar when I was just looking through his back catalogue and was like, what are some other Roy Scheider films that I can watch? And I've owned it for a little while because in the UK, there's a very nice Arrow video Blu-ray release of it. Um, and we that's one of the many things that we, we collect in our Blu-ray collection. So I've owned it for a while, but watching it in preparation for this podcast was actually the first time I've watched it. So very exciting. You're getting the, the, the first thoughts <laughs> of this <laughs> film from me. Um, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> um, I don't know if that's just because of how much I enjoy Roy Scheider in anything, but this is definitely one of his better films because he did do some crappy ones as well. It's not up there with his sort of 70s heyday because, I mean, you can't really top the run of films that he had in the 70s. I don't think anyone can when you've got Jaws, Sorcerer, all that jazz, The French Connection, Clue, others I'm probably forgetting. but Just two. (laughs) (laughs) I almost got it. Almost got it. (laughs) But yeah, that's that's a pretty tough, like, set of films to to try and beat but I didn't really have sort of like super high expectations going into it because you sort of hear like it's a cult film it's not really talked about that much um I mention it to people and they're like I've never heard of it uh, so I think that's where where a lot of people sit on it is just not knowing that this film exists but I had there were some things that I didn't like about it uh, specifically a lot of its treatment of female characters, which I think we'll get into mm-hmm, mm-hmm. later. Um, but I really liked this kind of sleazy, gritty, De Palma-style, neo-noir type of thing it's got going on, and it sort of throughout just teeters kind of nicely on the brink of like the sublime and the ridiculous, and it doesn't always get that right the ending not sure i was meant to laugh as hard as i did but i did laugh quite a bit uh (laughs) but i think that sort of like high manic energy that it has throughout it is something that goes in its favor so i'm on i'm on team either if uh he was the one who enjoyed it right (laughs) yeah i think so i mean it's hard to say that you enjoyed like i don't know if someone says i really enjoyed this film like you kind of have to ask you ask follow-up questions i think (laughs) 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 Just in case they need to be reported to the cops. <laughs> Just you know. Spe- speaking of, Randy, did you enjoy it? Yeah, I have a little bit of a history slash non-history with this film. This is a film that's been in my watch list, I'll say, for 25 years. And a, a good friend of mine had talked about 52 Pickup. You should see 52 Pickup. It's a lot like when we saw The Hidden, and we talked about that earlier at the start of the summer. That was a film that I knew of, and I even had a copy of it, um, but I didn't see it until this year. Well, for 52 Pickup, I it was, I think, last year, maybe two years ago, I said to myself, I, I got to track down a DVD or something. It's been a hard title to just find in Canada. So I ordered a DVD, and I watched it last year, and that was the first time I saw it, and I really liked it. Now, this time around, I think I'm going to say that I sort of lowercase L love it. I think it's a really, really good film. I'm okay with it living in the world of, you know, sleaziness, a film that reminded me a bit 
of was uh, Paul Schrader's hardcore, just sort of this world of uh, sleaze <laughs> and, you know, this this character that has to deal with this world where he he wouldn't have before or or even the Anne margaret character she gets sucked into this world and and she had nothing to do with it before so i really like this film i think it's it's got sort of the you know the the 80s noir type of thing going on it's it's simple it's a genre driven plot driven scam and scammer type of story i'm totally cool with that brilliant trio of film villains john glover clarence mm-hmm. williams the third and robert trevor i think that's Leo, I thought they were just a great tandem of villains and uh, just great performances, interesting characters. It's, you know, it's, it's simple. It's, it's not rich necessarily in, in theme or other things that are, that are going on that might, you know, elevate it sort of the next step. But for being a simple, like I say, like a grift and scam and scammer type of story, I think it's great. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm all on board for it. I think it's a great ride. And uh, I think there's also a nice piece in here where, and this, you know, coming from the Elmore Leonard novel, I presume, uh, Roy Scheider is sort of sticking it to the, the three bad guys and he's manipulating them and turning them on one another. And that's usually a dynamic we would see that is played the villain is doing that to the good guys, you know, manipulating them and they're sort of getting torn up, but it's sort of the other way around. I think that's sort of a neat angle. And I, I really, really enjoyed this. Yeah. I'm all on board for 52 pickup. I, you know, I'm, I'm so, I'm so happy that you guys, that you guys both enjoyed it because I watched it. I mean, I read the book b- beforehand because I said to myself, like we're doing this Emerald thing. I'm going to read all the films that uh, read all the books, the, the, the adaptations of which were we talk about talking about. So I read Ombre, I read this, I read Out of Sight, I read Jackie Brown, which is Run Punch, and I tapped out at this point. <laughs> I read like four of them in a row, and I was just like, I, I think I'm gonna stop now, because <laughs> but they're so easy to read. Like it's it, like he he genuinely wrote very sort of digestible pulp, and super entertaining. And I really enjoyed reading the book. There are some minor differences in the plot that kind of just weirdly enough, I think may maybe work to the detriment of the film, which which I watched the film and I had fun watching it, even knowing where it's going. Um, and I think it grows on me a little bit more after, after having having left it on the shelf for a few days. I think this this movie has grown on me a little bit, like because certain like it like I don't know memory is like a sieve like certain things just kind of just filter away very quickly and some things kind of stay with you and then you start and you keep thinking about them and one of them is like john glover for some reason just keep keep (laughs) thinking about it um so the more i think about the film the more i appreciate what frankenheimer has done to it and how it's been treated and i have actually I, i do agree with like how you know it has very little to say you could say like it doesn't have a theme going on it doesn't have you know a conversation that it could start and about i don't know like uh, uh crime in, in in the 80s i don't i don't i don't know I, I don't think it has any aspirations to do any of this it all it wants to be i think is just a noir piece of entertainment and i think i wrote this note myself like i, I want to see who's going to drop hardcore as a reference first <laughs> because <laughs> i'm watching this and i can clearly see, and then i'm super happy that you both mentioned two films i wanted to kind of sort of weave into this conversation so we might as well start with this but i and i actually i enjoyed this film um enjoyed watching the, ex- the experience of watching this film 
even though like I'm watching this, I'm just thinking like I can't believe I made Sarah watch this. <laughs> I, mean, this I mean, I knew from the book because the the books like when, you, when we we'll get to the female treatment, but the books are even like there there are insinuations in the film that are just very subtle in the in the book in the book are a little bit more sort of overtly explored and it kind of pertains to the theme of rape. Um, there's quite a lot of that in the book. Uh, but I'm just watching this and there's this scene with Vanity's just doing this show with the Polaroids because that's the sort of the whole shtick of this of, 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 of the sort of establishment that he, where he goes is just you rent a Polaroid and you can photograph naked ladies. And then she just talks to him as she is undressing and I'm just thinking to myself, I can't believe I made Sarah watch this. I mean, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Like... <laughs> At just... least Shider's in it, right? I'm just like, what kind of a gentleman am I? Please. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of uh, female nudity not balanced by uh, male nudity. Yeah. nudity. So <laughs> I get like a, a grainy half of a butt cheek, and that's all you get. <laughs> if you get John Glover in a, a pair of speedos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not quite. <laughs> it's an acquired taste, I want to say, but uh, <laughs> it's just. But any anyway, I I I'm on Team Ebert with this. I actually feel I'm actually on Team Janet Maslin, 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 where I actually feel like this is this kind of just taps into this energy of the sort of Paul Schrader slash Brian De Palma. And I wanted to kind of ask you guys, does it fit in this sort of post New Hollywood cinema of say let's just say Paul Schrader and Brian De Palma? Um, for reals, or is this an incident? Because Frankenheimer wasn't exactly known for making for making films of that sort, I don't think. Um, although I, I'm not too familiar with his 80s output. Uh, so, how do you guys feel about this movie actually trying to practice the sort of the neo noir a la De Palma, a la Schrader? I think it's it's quite incidental. <laughs> I don't know if it's necessarily trying to mm-hmm. to be those things. I think that's just how it has sort of shaken out in the the type of film that it is but yeah as I was watching it there were so many other films I was thinking this is like that and I'm my 80s film watching not as hot as some other people's it's just not a decade I've explored tons of but Mm -hmm. I as I was watching it I was just like this is a lot like a lot of the films that my husband really enjoys so i was like he will enjoy <laughs> he will enjoy watching this one that that sort of no good no bad characters in it really because i mean even though roy scheider is the good guy he's also a bit of a douche uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> he's cheating on his wife uh he's not the nicest person so it does fit in with a lot of other films of that time i think but i don't know if it's if it's necessarily trying to be those i think it's mm-hmm. just yeah like i said how it's how it sort of shakes out yeah i i would agree i think it it fits nicely because you you know you do in the 80s have films about affairs and and you're starting mm-hmm. to get into the you know sort of the sleaze types of films that you know you get from basic instinct and sliver but that starts with fatal attraction and you know, the, this type of uh, movie is, I think, starting in the 80s. And what I find interesting here is that it's a Canon production. So their business model was entirely different. This wasn't ever going to be a big hit. So this was a, 
you know, a film that they would always have ever had eyes on the video market for its success. And I, I recall from the eighties, you know, this type of, this type of thriller with, you know, a little bit of, uh, you know, titillation, the R rated thriller, you know, they're, they're, they were plentiful on the racks at video stores in the late eighties and, and early nineties. So, you know, it, it makes sense coming from, uh, you know, Canon that they would, they would know the types of films that would play well, uh, especially on video. And I find it, it's an interesting film for Scheider to take on because I don't want to say he's mm. slumming it because um, he's not, but he is getting to a point in his career where I think it's really tough for him to stay relevant. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'll say it now in a way, like we talked about the run that that man had in the seventies, like with uh, leading roles and supporting roles, like it's hard to think of many other actors who had a run of, top-notch high quality performances and notable hits that Scheider had um but you know he doesn't get he doesn't get the uh kudos that he deserves you know like he should be in my mind based on his 70s output he should be uh with Pacino and De Niro and those guys like his (laughs) he was such a phenom and at Mm -hmm. any rate in the 80s you know, by the end of the 80s, he's trying to stay relevant. And I think this is a lead role. Maybe there's an appeal to working with Frankenheimer. This is the first of two, I think, because he wasn't in French Connection 2, was he? I don't believe. I don't think he Scheider. was. No. no, I don't think so. But he worked with uh, he worked with Frankenheimer here. And I think his next film might be The Fourth War, which is another Frankenheimer film. So there's a nice little fit here. because Frankenheimer. Okay, so it's a few years later, but these are the types of films that he's taking, like you know the the not necessarily like the experienced cop that has a an axe to grind. Like these are the types of lead roles that he's getting. Like there's a film Night Game that he was in, and that's mm-hmm. you know that's not a very good watch as I recall. Uh, but I think he's he's fighting to stay relevant, and then even in the early '90s, he does that. Uh, Star Trek ripoff, what was it? Uh, Deep C9 or Deep C7, Sequest, Sequest. I think it's so Sequest. Yeah, so like these are career moves by, you know, an, a former A-lister or a B-plus lister. And I think he's just trying to stay relevant. And, you know, if I, honestly, I think if he looks around and he sees some of his contemporaries, he must be feeling a little bit jaded. Why is this so hard for me that I got to go to Canon and... You know, I got to take a risk with John Frankenheimer. Is that guy on the wagon now? Like, uh, <laughs> like he's taking risks at this time in his career to stay relevant, to get lead roles. And, um, you know, it just wasn't the story with, you know, guys like Pacino and De Niro and Voight. Like, th- those guys managed to to do it. And I don't think that's fair in a way because Scheider was so good, so good in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's really good here. But, uh, you know, I, I see a struggle at this point in his career. Uh, to to stay relevant just with the choices he's making and maybe has to make in order to get a lead. I don't know what you guys think of that, but but I find this an interesting project just as a career choice for him. It's it's kind of hard. Well, it's kind of difficult. Well, let's just say it's hard not to notice that I think after 1979, you can almost say that his career took a dive. Mm-hmm. Um, like it, it almost ironically sort of looks like with the ending of all that jazz, you know, like, 
with this, this sort of the, the the big song and dance number that takes I want to say like 15 minutes at the end of the film he essentially his career just took a dive with this sort of let's just say artistic death of the character now now Roy Shadow is kind of just all of a sudden just not taking the same roles and it uh, I don't I don't necessarily feel like he's his um this is a good opportunity for him in, in per se. It feels almost like it's a good opportunity for for the canon guys to actually bag Roy Scheider because he still has the clout of the guy who did did a whole run of really great films. Like we haven't even mentioned the Marathon Man as well, right? Or like <laughs> uh, in in the seventies, and then he. So he like it almost like I don't know I don't know who's doing whom a favor in here, but. I don't know. I, I feel I feel there there is an element to this, and uh, he's definitely not throwing it in. I, I would say this, and I, on on to, on the sort of subject of why I don't why he why he is his career has this sort of like weird um, cliff edge. I'm not sure what's going on in there, but I feel like the reason why he's not he's not sort of like the Pacino between the Pacinos and the Neros and the Walkins and whatever. Mm-hmm. Is because he didn't have these sort of like the sort of the slow descent of like well let's just take something that's not the Godfather right like, let's just <laughs> just slowly just you know taper off right like and he doesn't have like injustice for all <laughs> or mm-hmm. or something to that effect um, maybe no has he worked with with Scorsese maybe that's his bane that he didn't work with Scorsese I don't think he did <laughs> I, I don't, don't think, think he did. So. Yeah, so maybe that's it. Like you maybe need to work with Marty, and then and then, and then, <laughs> then he will he will set you up for the nineties. But I, uh, overall, I, I kind of feel like he has he he has he's a great fit for the for the role. As a mm. he he makes the movie what it is because the movie for me is like you say it's an eighties sort of proto erotic thriller in a way. But to me, this is like this sort of. Um, the evolutionary sort of like missing link between the two because he's it's still hardcore not new hollywood straw dogs french connection gritty type of filmmaking and equally it's the body double and equally it's like dress to kill uh and then blow out so it's I, I, it makes it interesting to me but but equally it kind of makes it very difficult to love as a result and then I would say like it, it, characters don't help because I sorry like you you just put it beautifully like he's a douche right I mean <laughs> so you don't have anyone to kind of just get behind really is yeah so I, I think it's it's a good point to actually even talk about the character of Harry Mitchell what do you guys think about the character itself just uh, well both the character and Roy Scheider as the character what do, what what's your stance on them as well just like a bit in a bit more detail because we're, we've been kind of just dancing around just Roy Scheider uh, as a as a cultural phenom slowly disappearing behind the horizon I don't know well because because the cinema was moving on without him almost because like he, he, before before that he did well he did Blue Thunder he did 2010 and then Right after that, his immediate credit is Jaws Four, which he didn't do because they only reused some some yeah. footage from Jaws. <laughs> just archive footage. <laughs> yeah, but then he literally just after that he doesn't really have much of a presence until David Cronenberg cast him in Naked Lunch. I want to say, but, right? but even that's just a small role. So he's and turning, even he yeah. starts turning in the small roles like The Rainmaker and that type of thing. Yep. Yeah. He he doesn't have he doesn't have a resurgence ever after after that and to a point that he took forty seven episodes in Sequest right as the captain. <laughs> and, uh, 
Look, you gotta you gotta do what you gotta do. Like you gotta pay the bills. <laughs> yeah, there's a a couple of things I want I want to touch on there. I think it's really interesting what you're saying about where this film sits exactly, and when you view it as something that is taking that grittiness of the seventies film seventies films that that Roy Scheider was in, and then the erotic thrillers that sort of like came later. This film kind of perfectly sits in the middle of those, but it's it's not enough of one or the other, mm-hmm. I think, to make it something that stands out in either one of those one of those fields. I would argue that that makes it a film that is interesting and is worth exploring and is worth watching because you can sort of track the films that 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 came after this and the influence of the of those seventies films in into the eighties, into the nineties and, and beyond sort of thing with how they brought those things together. But I, I mean, sorry if I'm repeating myself from when I came on to talk about Sorcerer, but I just have a, like a, a real, did I use the phrase be in my bonnet last time? I can't remember if that was on this podcast did, yeah. or another one. <laughs> I I still, yep. That B is still in that bonnet. Uh, of just why Roy Scheider wasn't a bigger star because he should have been. He should have been the Dustin Hoffman, Pacino, De Niro. Not even with my bias, but I think he is as good as a lot of those actors, particularly when you look at the the 70s output. And it's such a steep drop-off between his 70s films and then what comes after. It's kind of... I don't really see where it went wrong or what happened, but I think it is just a lot of not being given those opportunities and not being seen as the leading man and bloody Billy Friedkin calling him second banana or whatever. Like Billy, it's still, it's things like that. That's just like, well, no wonder it like he wasn't being given the same opportunities as a lot of his contemporaries and, similar actors but i think he absolutely is as good as any of those and should have had a career like that so yeah having not explored as many of his 80s films that's something i'm interested to to dive into more when you sort of see like not where it all went wrong because obviously he still continued to have a reasonably successful career but it's not what the 70s (laughs) were for for roy scheider but Mm -hmm. he is excellent in this film there's a couple of moments i think it's when he is listening to his wife give a speech about like honesty and integrity mm-hmm. and all the rest of it you could the there's guilt. just so much like <laughs> so much great stuff going on in his face and this is something that we mention a lot and let's draws for a minute it's just these small moments of of acting where he's not saying anything but you can just read so much from from his face and he's got such a great expressive face and i i i really loved that bit and there's there's other moments in the film as well where i just thought like he's such he's such a good actor he really should have had more opportunities but to make this character likable even though he is a douche i mean he's hard to like mm-hmm. admittedly but we're still on his side for the most part, <laughs> there's some moments where I'm like, oh, maybe you deserve to, you know, mm-hmm. lose all your money and uh, everything else. But yeah, I it's, it makes me sad that <laughs> Roy Scheider didn't have what those other guys had. 
Yeah, I agree. There's um, a moment very early on where he's at the office and he's taking a phone call from his wife. And if you watch that scene, it's, it's like you say, Sarah, these small little moments, like the way he responds to her, you can see there's guilt there because you know he's off to uh, probably to see Cine or yeah, that is exactly where he's going. So, and mm-hmm. the way that he responds to her is, is very, uh, you know, nuanced and it's, it's, it's very specifically acted like, I mean, he's, yeah, he's, he's giving a very uh, interesting performance, even in those small moments. And I, I think for me, what might have been a bit of an appeal as well for Scheider is that, this isn't just a traditional, you know, leading man who's all good that you can get behind. There's, there is sort of that scumbag side to him. And I think there's probably an appeal for an actor to do that. And uh, maybe at this point in his career, like it's, you know, it's this noir thriller and his character isn't strictly black or white. He is sort of gray and he is the protagonist and he does have a dark side. So I think there's an appeal to, to this character, I, I think for Scheider, and that's probably part of it, uh, why he takes this role. But I think that he does a, a really good job in here. There's also some uh, bigger moments where you you get his his shock at the the reveal of you know at one of the videotapes after the uh, the bad guys leave the room and the light comes on and he realizes he is in the very same location that this death that he just witnessed on the video cassette took mm-hmm. place and he sees sort of the the crime scene that he plays that with you know a, you know very <laughs> sort of shocking sincerity i yeah I, I think he's very much on board for this performance I, I wonder in a way if he saw it as maybe a way to get back on top like i, I think there's a depth here it's easy not to like him but I, I think that it's a nice character in a way especially for an actor because you know, he's, he's playing, he's playing different layers, you know, he's playing both, both sides. Like he's, he's sort of a good guy that the, the, the plot is following because at the very least he's better than the, the, the three dirtbags that, that are the antagonists, <laughs> but he is, he is also, you know, he's, he's a guy you wouldn't want to cross. He's highly intelligent and he's got sort of this scummy dark side, right. With going to strip clubs mm-hmm. and having an affair and, and all these types of things too. So, um, yeah, it makes sense to me, and I think it's it makes for a fascinating character. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I totally agree. And then what what was fascinating to me was because I read the book, and then the once you actually when you read the book, it actually explains quite a lot of more of quite a, it goes a little bit more in the into sort of the deeper end of his scumbaggery, if that's a word, right? <laughs> Why he is the way he is, and. Uh, it's only mentioned in passing and it's literally blink and you miss it in film where they say he was a Korean veteran. I mean, in the book, he's a World War II veteran. He was he used to be a fighter pilot. <laughs> he was a fighter pilot and he and they mentioned this and there's a conversation. And also it's a blink and you miss it because the character does not even show in the scene, but he's behind the door where Roy Scheider comes back. Well, he's in the in the house after his wife kicks him out, after he admits uh, doing that. And then he comes back. Uh, to get his stuff and then he finds out that their gun's missing right um so the wife comes back to the house oh mitch are you here whatever and then there's a guy with her and this guy is his friend from work who tried to have sex with his wife but she turned him down 
in the book, there is a whole chapter about how he's trying to seduce the guy's wife because she's vulnerable because she doesn't, she just kicked out his, her husband on the street. And then he's just trying to swoop in. And then like, he kind of paints the whole picture of this, this whole story is f- full of these just lurid, horrible people, <laughs> or more specifically, horrible men. <laughs> because, because they're just yeah like not a single man is redeemable in this film like there's not no <laughs> they're just they're all scumbags <laughs> but this is this guy is a specific scumbag and then i think for modern viewers i think the, the main connection to him would be someone like john wick that he's a guy who you whom you do not cross because he's the sort of decorated war hero who also has this sort of penchant for just getting stuff done like he does not stop when he ha- when he's on a mission and then he had a court martial in the in the book he, he they, they, they his wife explains this to his friend whom he's about to betray by hitting on his wife that you know he's he had a he had this case after the war they court martialed him because he was on his on his way back and the allied soldier allied planes f- opened fire on him they didn't know he was one of them so he killed all of them <laughs> and then and he he got away scot free because he he didn't he didn't have any means of communicating to them because this their his radio wasn't working and they were trying to kill him so he killed them, and that kind of this this kind of encapsulates what he's going to do with all these other people who crossed him and then she kind of communicates this to to the friends like you cross him, and then you put you maybe drag me to bed and if I say yes and whatever or if you even do this by force because that's also on the cards then you're going to have to deal with him and he will hurt you. <laughs> so that kind of explains that he has this sort of almost like a moral code that he, well, the, the, the way he kind of goes about treating John Glover and all like Alan Ramey and all, Bobby Shire, all these people, is kind of rooted in some kind of this disciplined uh, conviction to just make sure that, that, he, that he comes out on top. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I don't know. It makes it makes his character a bit more interesting. I think the, the, it comes through in the film. It's just one of those things that I'm just looking at this. You know, like even days after watching this, I'm just thinking to myself, like, wow. Without reading this book, I would probably think this is a bit of a mess. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> but I kind of feel like the, the the character of Harry Mitchell is is fascinating to me as as because I, I see him. I mean, in the seventies, you could say this is like he's like Charlie Bronson in Death Wish or something like this. Or more so than he is like George C. Scott in Hardcore, where uh, he he would be on on, a, on a, almost like on a mission from God, right? Where he has to go and save his kid. Now he he needs to like his his wife is safe at least for a good chunk of the story. She's safe, and then she he's just trying to make sure that these people will not get away with it. So I, I don't makes makes him. I mean, to me, this makes this whole film just be. A modern sort of rendition of classic noir because like these people are all shady but i, I don't know it makes it great mm. and it's it's interesting because you do sort of feel that being torn between like wanting him to succeed and not wanting him to succeed because the reason why he's why he's doing it, why he is sort of trying to play the the bad guys off off against each other, is to save his own skin, really, and to to not ruin his his reputation or his wife's reputation because his wife is campaigning for something or running for something. She's running for um, office, right? 
yeah, yeah. some <clears throat> political thing but yeah so it's 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 not like there is you know a good person that 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 needs saving the thing that he is trying to save is like his own image and his own reputation but he's not a good person because he's been doing stuff behind his his wife's back and he's clearly got a past as well i mean he put the way he sort of plans to play these guys off against each other that's not something that just like an order ordinary like joe schmo just cooks up overnight Mm -hmm. this is someone who is used to double crossing people climbing on top of people pushing people down to get to where he he needs to be and he's a a seemingly successful businessman although perhaps doesn't have as much money as would appear um but what what came out really strongly through this character is just how much he cares about his reputation and and the way that he looks where that is his almost like sole motivation for wanting to stop these guys Mm -hmm. is obviously if that tape gets out or that that truth gets out about him cheating on his wife that's bad for looks bad on him looks bad on his business looks bad on his wife as well who obviously is you know running for some kind of office and that that being so focused on on image it's just yeah i i just find that that interesting in a character and as it's mentioned later i i can't remember exactly but that when his they're they're checking like the books or his like accounts or something and it Mm -hmm. he doesn't have as much money as he's as he's letting on so there's this false image that he is presenting of himself as well and it's very that to me felt very 80s very kind of look at me i've got a nice car and a nice house and a personalized jacket and giving off this impression of of wealth but actually not having as much money as as it appears that he does so again Mm -hmm. that ties into this whole thing about him really caring about the way that he looks and the way that he is perceived by others um and having that be his motivation i think just makes for a very very interesting character and an interesting film as well Mm -hmm. i think there's a piece too here that might be worth discussing is the relationship with ann margaret because his wife i thought she was a great character and i really enjoyed her performance but there's a, a feeling that i get that their marriage is a very interesting one because I, I sort of took his character at face value when he said, look, I, I I have to deal with this in a way that protects my wife because I've done all this mm-hmm. stuff to build myself up and my career and she's supported me along the way. So if she runs for office, if she goes ahead with that, this is the one thing she's done for herself. I can't let a scandal pull her down. I think there's a sincerity to that. But what's interesting mm-hmm. to me about their marriage is it itself seems somewhat one almost as if they're business partners as opposed to uh you know you know loved ones and and you it's know a married romantic. couple it's it's not it's not romantic at all but you know just in you know exploring Roy Scheider's character he is a guy who is probably as Sarah suggested all about himself or at least if he's got a goal in mind he behaves a certain way, which is probably very uh, business-like and very shark-like. And, you know, I'm going to go direct to my, uh, no pun intended, uh, but 
I'm going to go direct to my, my business target and I'm going, I'm going to get it. And, you know, if I make enemies along the way, he's, he's not scared of that type of thing. And somewhere along the way, if he and Anne Margaret ever were in love, that has ended, but they still, I think, have a very stable loyalty to one another. And I find that an interesting, uh, you know, piece and, you know, there's some good dialogue that comes out of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would, I would say definitely that in th- that scene is going to make an appearance. Their conversation is very interesting in that, um, like you could say that they're almost like a power couple. Like, I don't know, like, I don't want to use like House of Cards as an example, but that's something that just immediately just comes to my attention, like the sort of chemistry between the two. They're, they're both sort of obsessed with their own goals. Weirdly enough, um, and, well, the, the wives uh, sort of, uh, po- political aspirations do not feed this is invented for the film because in the in the book this just it's just him doing this to repair whatever he's messed up himself but you but it just adds this sort of interesting wrinkle because now now he has to think about his wife and then her aspirations and then as you said like she, she's she's trying to build herself up and then she's been supporting him, me all along and then now i'm gonna go and do this this is like a very mature relationship but then she at the same time you say well they're very business-like but i would say that she still hurts like i think you could see in 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 the way she acts when when he comes clean and he says well i've had this affair with this woman and she's 21 or whatever and you can see that she's holding back but she's just old old enough to know that screaming and breaking plates is not gonna butter any parsnips right she just she we have well, there's a problem we need to solve this so is this over because we we have this thing going on that we've built a life together and we'll be like i've i've committed so much of my sort of life capital in this relationship with you and she's all she's i think she's just almost like making the sort of mental calculations in her head like is it in my interest to actually throw you out the door right now because it will feel like such a waste of time on my behalf just two decades together all of a sudden can I actually get past this? I will probably have to have a moment or whatever, but then she actually probably makes these decisions in her head. And then it makes it kind of more fascinating and lifelike as well, because well, we could say people in their fifties would probably have this sort of these conversations when, I don't know, the husband goes and just sleeps around for a second in a moment of weakness. I don't know, because I think Roy Scheider had, he he claims this is a moment of weakness. He was just like, I didn't know why I did this. It just felt like, I don't know. and then they'll just have a conversation. Just well, do we end our marriage on 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 the back of this, or do we just behave like grown-ups and then say, "Let's not do this again"? And then I'll 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 just be able to hold it over your head for a while. So how about that? You know, so I, I don't know. Makes it makes it a very interesting dynamic to me. Yeah, I 100% uh, agree with that. And there's something because they're both mature performers performers, like in terms mm-hmm. of their age. They're I think both uh, Anne Margaret and Roy Scheider and the mid fifties, I'm going to say around here. And Mm -hmm. because both characters are business oriented and tuned into the other, their partner's operations that it still feels like, like a a business relationship to me. And, uh, you know, I I think you're right. She's processing a lot in in her head. And I think that she's saying to to herself as well, well, shit, I knew that there was a chance this would happen. So let's, let's discuss it now. And I think it's fascinating too, that, you know, this, the scene that we're talking about at their dialogue, it starts because of a choice Roy Scheider's character make. Harry says, uh, yeah, I got something that I got to tell you. And he just, you know, there's no, 
you know, pussyfooting around, there's just boom, here's the, here's the, here's the bombshell that I'm going to drop. And it's very, you just don't see this type of, you don't see this type of a reveal of an affair to a partner in film and the way that plays out. And I think it's actually Mm -hmm. a very special part of the, the film. And a great, it's a great moment for both actors. Like it's, it's a well-written scene. It must've been fun for each of them to, you know, jump into this scene. And the, the whole relationship, by the way, like this is something that, I mean, I've been thinking about this is, this is how it's a grower, not a shower, right? Because you could think to yourself and this kind of comes all again, like, I don't want to sound like this is death by adaptation, the sequel in here, we're just (laughs) comparing book and the film, (laughs) but, um, it kind of looks to me like I'm I'm watching the film and reading the book and this is like like I feel like Elmer Leonard's writing about himself a little bit or just like a wish fulfillment fantasy for him that this is a like a story about a guy who's saving his marriage in a way and then you can see I mean in the book is a bit more fleshed out but it, it is essentially about a, a man making a mistake and then doing whatever he can to actually save his wife like at, at the end of the day that's all this is and then you could say that this is I think woven into this sort of very fascinating sort of plot about these three thugs trying to extort a businessman and then this being very lifelike because I don't know in the 1940s would be like ah oh, see I don't know Jimmy Stewart would probably just play this uh, <laughs> like okay it sounds like I hate Jimmy Stewart but it would be just like this sort of guy who's just like oh I'm trapped in this prison what am I gonna do now he's just very emasculated Whereas in real life, a guy who gets to be a CEO of a company that he's built from ground up, he's not going to be taking any prisoners either. Like he's going to be a take no prisoners, balls to the wall type of personality that he does not negotiate with terrorists, for instance. Like he does not take no for an answer. And then again, in the book, they have this whole subplot in the in the book. I understand why it was removed because the film would be four and a half hours long for no reason with like extra characters that make no difference to the actual plot. But there's this subplot in the story about um, workers in in the steel mill, steel mill that he has because it makes like parts for cars because it's set in Detroit in the book. They have a union rep and this union guy is trying to undermine the production. He's trying to organize a mutiny and then uh, in the, he well, basically just, he finds out about what's happening. He finds out who does what and why why the production stalls, why the numbers are not adding up, and why the why the company is on the brink of collapse as a, as a result of this. He goes and beats the guy into a pulp. So he just yeah, like you, you get almost a glimpse of what he's gonna do to John Glover <laughs> because he's he's not gonna stop. And then I I don't know. It just makes the whole thing lifelike. I, I mean, especially when Sarah you mentioned in the, in in the like, I don't know a few minutes before. Um, how like it, it's all about image and then and how he he cares about what he looks like this or I mean how he, the image he projects onto society at large and then how he little money he has and almost to me this means like I watch this and I'm thinking so this guy's really smart because he's a very rich guy who also does not have any money like it's just <laughs> it's like the smartest thing rich people will do they were just like I don't have any cash on me like it's all tied up in something right. And it's just like, well, why you need to pay taxes? Ta- pay taxes on what? Like, I don't have any. <laughs> just, like, he's a Tory. <laughs> so, <laughs> it makes him, I guess, like, hard for the, the bad guys, like, to extort. They probably wish they'd picked a guy Someone who else, had yeah. cash in the bank because, like, yeah. his money is clearly tied up in not 
cash that's readily available. So <laughs> it makes uh, their jobs more difficult. <laughs> even better, Rinko. And a, a, a slight, um, I, I want to say a segue towards the John Glover character because they have a great scene together where, where, where one of the thugs, John Glover, who's the ma- mastermind of this gets invited to his office and he goes look through my books like this is how much money i have and he opens these books and he says well if you don't know what you're well if you know what you're looking at it's going to take you this many hours if you don't know what you're you're looking at you're going to be here until christmas and you'll still not have an idea and he just opens these books and he just knows what he's looking at and he's very good at it and and you ask yourself why is this guy a pornographer (laughs) why does he own a nudie cinema at the polaroid place and then why does he hang out in his speedos in a bathrobe with a camera filming naked ladies in, a, in at his parties or whatever? Like we, he could clearly run a business that's just well <laughs> legit, right? <laughs> but I, th- I don't know. It's it's an interesting wrinkle, and also that leads us to John Glover. What do you guys think about the thugs in general, or maybe John Glover specifically? Because I think he kind of stands out a little bit, at least in my opinion. Thoughts on this guy? He's so nasty. <laughs> Like he's just he's just such a nasty character but also like just very compelling to 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 watch uh yeah i i always think it's difficult if you have multiple bad guys or whatever because you run the risk of one of them just sort of standing Mm-hmm. above the above the others but i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing in in this film because he is the the mastermind and then the others sort of act on on his behalf or whatever one's the goon like, one's the liability yeah. and there's a and there's a and there's the and there's the sed- seductive sort of uh, mistress somewhere in there yeah so they're like the world's worst, worst X-Men. I, I, I wondered in watching this, like I like I know they're all in the pornography business, so I get how they would know one another, but it just seems like such an odd collection of personalities yeah. to form. And hey, guys, let's do this project together as equals. It's such a weird collection of uh, personalities. But, you know, I, I like them all. Sorry. Go ahead, Sarah. I'm jumping in. Yeah, no, that, that's a very good point. Actually, like it's just like what what bought these did they three <laughs> misfits together? That's the film I want to watch. But you always fifty one pickup. That's what you want to watch. <laughs> Pick up, yeah, the prequel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's. <laughs> I think I know where they. I think I know where that uh, film takes place. It's uh, anyone of a porno number theater, of brothels or, or porno theaters <laughs> or <laughs> dark alleys. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, definitely that. But I I like them as a trio because even though there is this feeling of them working together throughout, I was like, they're going to try and muscle out each other as well. Just when you have those really sleazy, nasty characters, they're such a mismatch of, of personalities and, 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 and people that you're like they're not working towards the same thing surely like mm-hmm. they are all working for themselves they just happen to be thrown together in this situation they have different things that they can perhaps bring bring to it but ultimately they are gonna double cross each other as well as trying to extort Roy Scheider but yeah I wonder if this is something that Elmore Leonard does really well and I haven't read any of his books but just the 
the nature of making these scams and these grifts. What I love about these characters uh, I mentioned earlier is that Scheider is able to manipulate them and use them against one another in a way that mm-hmm. you don't see protagonists often often do. And I, I love that element here. And, and just talking a little bit about the Scheider character makes total sense because he's sort of an alpha in the world of business and if you cross him well his back's going to get up and how's he going to respond so he responds relatively aggressively towards these people that are extorting him and so his his character manipulating them like it, i think it speaks a lot to uh you know Scheider's character but just i find that's the the interesting hook in here or at least one of them is that Scheider is sort of disassembling this this crew by by manipulation i i find that just such an interesting angle and like i said mm-hmm. like, i think leonard does this a bit i mean we kind of have i mean at some point we, we, we probably would make sense to kind of just almost go scene by scene by through this <laughs> when you think about how this kind of comes about well you, like you kind of meet this trio as they uh, show him a, a home video of like we know we've been sleeping around and then we want hundred and five thousand dollars and then we'll, we're not gonna show this tape to anyone and then he says well I think well, he does. He he gets a bag of of, of paper and just I think um, I don't, I can't remember what he writes on the piece of paper. Like eat some ass or I don't know <laughs> something like that. Something something like that. Something, something like that. And so it, it just r- pisses them off. And John Glover just flips someone uh, off in a in a car and says, "Have a nice day." <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> Have a nice day. <laughs> it's just great. Uh, but then they go, okay, well, fine. We have to kind of step it up on us. So they steal his gun, steal his sport coat, and they kill the woman. And they film it and they show it to him in a brilliant scene. And then he still doesn't budge. He still goes, fine, I'm gonna, I'm gonna double down on this. And then, like in the, in the in the book, they kind of just you can see that they they all have their own grifts, like Trinity, not Trinity, Vanity, <laughs> uh, Vanity's character, Doreen, um, Doreen has his own her own business she just she prostitutes herself that's her main business and then she goes and just does the sort of dancing on the side almost but she makes money out of uh you know sleeping with shoe salesmen and who lasts three minutes with her so she gets like three minutes of grief and then and then four hours sleep and she has five hundred dollars that's her sort of um that's her deal that's how leonard describes it you could argue that well um the way females are portrayed in elmore leonard books is just let's just say questionable um, but that's just what that's the world he paints and then Bobby Shy is kind of just grafted onto her almost like they're almost like a like a like a double like a double team sort of situation and Leo is just a fuck up like he's just a guy who probably just they they hired to run a store <laughs> and then just he just happens to be there because he's a bona fide liability right and then, so but then as as the sort of film kind of just unfolds you almost see how intricately they're well they're they're actually playing what and and as you said like they're trying trying to muscle for control over this but it's all instigated by roy scheider's character and it's in just throwaway lines when i think so how did you know about something and then and then you just immediately just uh, because well no hold doreen tells him that it's alan ramey right That, that she points john glover's character out to him it's like, well, do you, do you have an umbrella? No. Um, what kind of weather do do you use the umbrella when when it is it when it's raining? Well, close, right? And that's all she says to him. And then whenever 
he's asked about, well, how do you know it was me? He immediately lies and says, Leo told me. And then, and they, they kind of just, and so he, he, to me, this is again a testament that he's such a guy you don't really mess around with because he's the alpha of the business world. So he's an apex predator. And then what he does, he took, he looks at us, I don't know, a herd of wildebeest or I don't know, water buffalo, and he just picks out the ailing one. <laughs> he's just like, <laughs> He's just going after the, the 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 weakest in 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 the herd, and he's just gonna pick up pick up them, and they essentially just take care of each other until just John Glover's left to to be dealt with, and that's just I don't know. To me, this is smart screenwriting and smart just in general, just smart writing. But I feel like these characters just are just an, a very interesting sort of trio to look at, even though I have no clue how they met. And at, at some point, I don't even want to know how they met because yeah. this is probably gross. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's interesting how Roy Scheider's character is pulling the strings of this whole. Mm-hmm film and how important he he is in sort of taking those guys down but getting them to do it to each other i i just find that as a concept very interesting and very entertaining because it's like we want to we want to see all of these guys get their comeuppance but the fact that he is sort of like twisting it and 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 pulling the strings and manipulating them to do it to each other makes it just that little bit more satisfying <laughs> i think we're sort of you know like we were saying earlier this isn't just a, a a guy an ordinary guy who is forced into being the hero this is a guy who is skilled at manipulation mm-hmm. uh the film doesn't super dive into that in terms of like his his past i think it could have given us a bit more about how he got to where he is in in his business and with this sort of reputation that he has has created for himself i think it is lacking a little bit there but we can fill in the blanks i think easily mm-hmm. enough to to figure out what exactly he has done to get to the position that he is in because it just seems to come to him very very easily <laughs> the way he is able to sort of like manipulate these guys against Mm -hmm. each other and what's great though is that perhaps with the exception of of leo who doesn't seem to bring much to the the table uh they're all pretty good at what they do and good at (laughs) extorting people and taking advantage of of people as well and it's like the master manipulator manipulating Mm -hmm. these three very manipulative guys Mm -hmm. it's a lot of times using the same word but you know what i mean well you know like you would get some marks taken off of your essay by by your secondary school teacher for this c (laughs) minus no i get get what you mean i mean in in all fairness like it kind of just becomes this of like the uh the showdown of two sort of giga minds with bobby shy being the goon the, the muscle in the middle right who's also scary in his own right because he's the only person actually who takes action in there and he's he has a few scary scenes as well uh so i don't know what you guys think because he kind of comes and goes he almost kind of just twaddles along he has this sort of also almost very weird gait about him like he's just sort of this he's this sort of cool gangster from the hood and then he just he just comes out of nowhere kills someone and just leaves mm-hmm. <laughs> 
yeah, I like him. He goes from you know zero to zero to a hundred on the Fury scale and the snap of a finger. I, I think mm-hmm. he's very interesting. Got a great voice too. I really like that actor. I don't know too much else that he's been in, but I, I was. Really, I don't think he did yeah. anything else of note. I right? think he was big. Am I right in saying this? The Mod Squad, maybe. I, I think a long time ago, maybe the TV show with Peggy Lipton, um, and then he shows up. I think maybe in a couple other frankenheimer films i maybe. well weirdly enough you know that before this he was the father character in purple rain oh okay uh, but yeah i can look at his uh, yeah tv the, yeah he was in the mod squad yeah he was link <laughs> he was so he was the main character right in there but like but he's like he's weirdly enough in cinema he didn't really get to do much but then he's such a such an interesting sort of looking uh demeanor I, I don't know i really like him yeah I, I did as well and he he does a lot with with posture and mm-hmm. the, you know like you said it like his his gait and sort of his tone of voice very hushed yeah i thought it was a really good performance for something that might not look too special on the page like i i think that frankenheimer does a great job working with the actors here and and helping them you know get to a space that is very unique like leo's a dirtbag and you know a little bit cliched but i think it's a good performance by that actor as well what was his name robert trevor maybe uh, i think yes. anyway like i you know <laughs> an odd character and slightly quirky and certainly uh you know you know what he looks like bag, a bolding really seth rogan <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe yeah <laughs> different speaking voice, of by maybe, the way yeah I, I had a whole list of like well i'm looking at these characters john glover do you Am I the only person who sees in certain scenes? I see Willem Dafoe, Jim Carrey, Nick Nolte, and Christian Bale, all in one person. That's not bad. He has it's these moments where he's just like, he looks like Jim Carrey and Nick Nolte, and then he goes like, oh, he looks like Willem Willem Dafoe and a little bit of Nick Nolte, and now he's Christian Bale. It's just such a chameleon. Just it's a, I don't know. I really love this guy. The whole, the whole sort of the the, the goon squad is just the best. Yeah, yeah I think yeah. he's. I like John Glover as well. Now this reminds me actually, and I'll I'll bring it up because we um, we have quorum at the meeting of the Roy Scheider fan club. The Last Embrace, which is a Jonathan Demme film, very Hitchcockian in style. Mm-hmm. That's sort of a cool little film, and John Glover's in that as well. So John Glover and. Uh, John and Roy Scheider, they have a few mm-hmm. scenes in that too. Yeah, I like oh, I like John Glover. I think he's really memorable here. You know, last embrace. Good to see a sport. My... Nice leg, Slim. Like it's just. I mean, yeah, just he's almost like he's written like a 1940s character, right? sort of. Yeah, yeah. Like with this sport and slim, and it's just like who says th- things like this in 1986 or even 1974? Just because it's in the book, right? Like even in the 70s, who says things like this? Nobody. So it's essentially to me this is a throwback to us. Like he's supposed to be this noir character, like like you could imagine like someone like I don't know, uh, Rock Hudson <laughs> playing playing him or someone like this, and then you know ah she it's just it's just these baggy <laughs> zoot suits and. <laughs> <laughs> just fedoras and everything and it's just he also happens to be a pornographer like this is this is noir of the eight this is just well like haze code we can leave it to to one side now there's full frontal bush everywhere right <laughs> <It's> just, 
because it's the 80s baby and we can get away with it and it's an independent production so no one's really you know it's not a holy it's not hollywood so you know which actually brings brings me to something that sarah you've alluded to in the beginning the portrayal of females in the film how do we feel about this uh quite unfortunate really (laughs) that's a a one way to put it thank you yeah yeah i think that this film could certainly be read as being quite um misogynistic and cruel to its female characters um none of the characters sorry the film or the characters what uh do you think Funkenheimer is just like relishes in this a little bit? I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think anyone was mistreated. I think that's mm-hmm. just the world that mm-hmm. is created here is one that is just quite leering and mm-hmm. <laughs> a <Yep>. bit nasty <laughs> towards its its female characters. They're they're lacking in that sort of agency and 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 depth as as characters i think they seem to exist in this to be either just looked at and admired or killed <laughs> mm-hmm. in some way um i think that the 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 best of them is um i can't remember the character's name but roy, roy Scheider's character's wife in this she at least oh, and has yes yeah Barbara, at least yes. has um has her career and she has some 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 good scenes as well we know a bit more about her than than we do these others but uh yeah it's it's hard because i enjoyed this film uh, a lot but that <laughs> side it's of almost, things just didn't sit <laughs> didn't sit almost, that comfortably you almost kind of enjoyed despite this <laughs> Like, yeah yeah there was enough yeah. other stuff that i liked that i was kind of like uncomfortable gross not a big fan of that but i it makes sense for the world that is created in this film right mm-hmm. it's yeah it doesn't mean i necessarily like it being there i would maybe prefer it if it wasn't but it makes sense in this world that does mm-hmm. just seem sort of quite cruel and sleazy and nasty yeah it, it does feel like an elmore leonard world like Jacob, what was mm-hmm. what was barbara's character for example like in the book because i would say the the exception in here is that um and margaret's character barbara for the most part i have <laughs> i have a couple of problems with how her character ends up but for the most part mm-hmm. she's given a fairly fleshed out and uh well realized uh, character with a background that you can read in and uh, she's given some good moments How, what's she like in the book well f- fun fact in the book she does not have anything of that sort of agency <laughs> like you could see that this is this is a, this is an Elmore Leonard thing I think because he's kind of like a I could imagine him just like smoking a cigar and just holding a rifle like he's just this sort of like this weirdly <laughs> sort of weird like weirdly masculine person like he's all yeah so like you you know like you're reading this book you know you're reading this through this sort of uh this sort of like jockey lens if you know what i mean (laughs) so it's it's very odd because she does not have the political career in there this political career is invented for the film to give her some agency and to give roy scheider's character 
uh, agency and, and reason to do whatever he does that extends beyond just saving his own ass. Um, because <laughs> that would make him even more of a scumbag. And then uh, you think to yourself, like, what the test screenings would look like. <laughs> but um, so in the book, she's essentially a supportive character who falls prey to these. She's essentially a damsel in distress in the film, uh, in the book, because it's only alluded to in the in the film. And you can, again, it's a blink and you miss it scene. In a scene where, say, John Glover goes into the house and then she accosts her and he kidnaps her. And then she gives her heroin. And then it's in, in the film. I don't know if you guys paid attention to it. But then he gives her heroin and takes off his shirt. And then cuts. And, and, and you see Roy Scheider. Because he rapes her. And he rapes her multiple times. Like Alan Ramey is a scumbag of like the, the lowest order. Like this is just absolute bottom of the barrel sort of human being. Right? Uh, and as he's written in the book, and then there's just multiple sexual assaults in the in in the book on the multiple characters, because that's the the type of men that these people are. It's just like it's just honestly just gross to just sometimes to sit through some of these scenes because um, what was it what was it? this is something that actually stayed with me. And just I, I couldn't shake it off when because he just casually just makes a phone call in the book. He make, Alan Ray makes a phone call to Roy Scheider and just gives him the, the wife. Uh, on the phone, just well, I have your wife, so how about you come through with the money? And then, uh, and then she's like all groggy and stuff. And then, and he says to her, It's like, Well, don't worry, I treated her well, but don't worry, she's not going to get pregnant the way I did it. And then you just, and that's that's all that's all it's said in the in the book. And then just you just realize, Oh, this is what he means. And you know, if you know what he means, then well, you, you know what he means. Uh, and it just makes it even more vile. But that's just completely in- inexistent in the film. Because I think if it was in the film, I'm not sure who you'd be able to show this film mm-hmm. to. Because X-rated probably wouldn't even begin to cover it. Because that's just how gross the story is in its own... Like in like how it was written. So I, I don't know. But then I'm kind of interested now when you say like... Um, how it's almost discomforting to kind of watch this and then i'm just thinking to myself like i had these sort of like taxi driver hardcore vibes when i was watching this like do you think like sarah specifically like do you think um would you compare these two things or or do you have similar sort of um reflex when you watch something like hardcore or uh or taxi driver for instance or because yeah i just uh, i don't want to psychoanalyze you person personally but i'm just like trying to kind of get to the bottom of what makes this film kind of just go this swing one direction whereas something like scorsese or schrader would swing the other direction if there is a different direction that they swing in yeah it's it's hard to say because like i said this it's the the way that women are treated in this you hate to say it but does make make sense in this world doesn't make it okay obviously and that's when films kind of like use use that or use their female characters in in that way i don't like it (laughs) ever obviously but if it makes sense for that character if there is a reason for it and it's not just there to be kind of exploitative or titillating or whatever it is that that they're doing as long as there is a reason for that to exist 
in the context of that film, you can kind of go, okay, don't like it, obviously, but it has a it has a purpose. It doesn't feel like something like gross and nasty that a director or someone has just kind of like put in to be like, let's you know show some let's show, get some nudity some in this film. <laughs> yeah in this yeah. in this film somehow and i mean this this film 52 pickup doesn't sort of feel particularly celebratory of of women it's of women it's not empowering that they are living in this this world that does seem quite seedy and is sort of taking advantage of them there's no sort of aspect of like I guess you get a little bit. I mean, Doreen is obviously like she's she's doing pretty well for herself financially, but it's you get the it's feeling gross. that this isn't. Yeah, yeah, this isn't what she wants to be and doing. Still under the <laughs> she's still under the thumb of others. Yeah, right? yeah. like in, yeah. And in a risky, risky, volatile position. Yeah, it's it's tricky, and it's an interesting thing to 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 think about other films and the way they use that as well but yeah it's i wasn't uh, i obviously i wasn't you know loving all of the (laughs) the stuff that's that's in this film but it it wasn't kind of like oh god awful i need to turn this off because why is that in there i was like why why did he make me watch this (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah i think it's yeah yeah when you're sort of setting up this very kind of like Yeah, when you're sort of setting up this very kind of like sleazy type of environment and anything that it, you know, it it's set in this kind of like nudie bar or establishment or whatever where people just go and take pictures. You're like, okay, I'm anticipating there will be stuff in it that isn't great, <laughs> but at, at least it is part of the the story. It's not just like let's get some nudity in this somehow lads like <laughs> yeah and, and the the era too right like you know we we're looking at this through the lens of you know folks in 2022 and mm-hmm. you know we've talked about this before Jacob. like you know, mm-hmm. like something like blowout um it was just a different storytelling time and you know the yeah. executives that are greenlighting these things they see the story and you know no, almost inevitably no matter what the story was you know you had cliches for the male characters and cliches for the female characters and i think to a certain extent that this film even though you have some sharpness that's written for some of the characters along the way there's still an overall attitude of you know this is this is the way of the world and this is a man's story and a man has to fix the problems and that's you know just the way that is and wouldn't have crossed anyone's radar in 1986 to say, oh, well, mm-hmm. you know, if we're going to make Anne Margaret's character, you know, stronger, that's probably in a way that's a, that's a, that's an interesting choice that they made that they, they did breathe some interesting depth to her character. Um, you know, but, you know, it's still, it's still the, the world of, you know, hardcore and you know sleazy new york or something i know it's in la but you know <laughs> new york gets a lot of uh gets a lot of uh, attention for sort of its 1970s mm-hmm. sleaze but that's the type of world that it, it is and then the stories are just plucked out of that and you know probably a male exec says yeah okay let's do this that sounds good we've got the rights to that let's sort of do it as it is on the page mm-hmm. yeah I, I yeah i agree it's um 
it is yeah i'm I'm watching this and i actively think just like oh jesus christ sarah's gonna hate me for this <laughs> your your guilt chip is jesus christ like what have i done because guilt i haven't algorithm. seen this before like i was just you know it's a roy scheider film that's kind of on my bucket list like come on like, let's do this together right like you know like, go team and then just, <laughs> just and i'm just looking at this and i'm just thinking to myself okay well certain things you can explain by okay well this is just the world these people are in and then maybe when i because I, I was act- actively uncomfortable, say, there is a scene where in the book you don't really make too much of it because I think you can you would have to kind of imagine quite a few things in, in your head, but you, you don't get, you, you don't necessarily have to when, you, when you're interested in other things, right? So the scene where he goes, rents this Polaroid and he just speaks to Doreen as she's undressing and just makes these YMCA poses, you know? I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what she is doing. But that, and as he's trying to figure out wh- wh- who Sini really is, like his girlfriend, because he didn't know he she was a porn actress or something like this. So she he he just thought it was like she was just like I don't know a student or something. He's like, oh, cutie pie, we're all students here. <laughs> and just which is is this social commentary about tuition fees? I don't know. But, <laughs> yes, it is potentially. <laughs> But, but then I'm just thinking to myself, okay, well, I'm watching a noir film and I'm just thinking to myself, maybe this is one place where Frankenheimer kind of fails to kind of flesh certain things out because the, a, a noir film needs a f- femme fatale character. And I think Doreen's probably the closest that would qualify, but she's kind of sort of almost underwritten or underused in a way. And uh, maybe that would have made, made, made your experience a little bit different when you actually saw if you actually saw that she would start meddling with with these characters and actually start help because she is actively helping Mitchell a little bit along the way because I think she may she may be having second thoughts or maybe she's just purely driven by finances because the guy's rich and he's offering her like thousands of dollars to do whatever but I mean, she has her reasons right but then she kind of just comes and goes and then she comes back in the scene where she just talks through her through her sleep and Bobby Shine nearly kills her. Uh, and then she, I think she disappears to, for for the remainder of the film. Like I'm not sure where if, if we actually oh, see her she's, again. She's driving Bobby Shy to the final meeting with yeah, uh, true. Alan. But then yeah. yeah, so she's essentially just what uh, a yeah, a, a, almost a passenger to to the story again. So maybe that's sort of something that I'd, I'd wish sort of like the story fleshed out a little bit better because Doreen is an, an interesting character in her own right. Because all the other female characters are either just kidnapped and abused or killed, mm. so, so yeah, clearly this, the film is oh, the story itself is not very kind to women. I think that's an understatement. But uh, I, yeah, I don't know. And, and it felt and it felt almost uncomfortable to just think to myself, Jesus Christ, like what what are we watching here? Because <laughs> <laughs> for a while you don't quite know, do you? Like that yeah. are are we? Like is Frankenheimer really just getting off on this? Like, what are we supposed? To, where are we supposed to be on this? Like, I don't know. Like, it feels like very un- ambiguous. I think that way. I think because there is so much moral gray area with the the main character, it does make those things even more uncomfortable. I guess because it's just like we can watch it now as as modern audiences and and be uncomfortable about these things. But when you sort of think about it being made at the time you're like what did they want people to think about (laughs) about it when they when they were making it because that lack of the sort of femme fatale character like you're you're saying I mean Doreen is the the perfect fit for that and that would add such an interesting element to the film as well if she because she does she does help Harry out like you said so if 
if she then got to get her revenge or sort of like help help him take down the bad guys as well that would at least just give something because it feels like based on what you've said about the book and how much more extreme that is and then the changes they made with the character of, of Barbara for the film feels like they're just kind of like ticking a little box <laughs> a bit where they've just kind of gone okay we're gonna give her a little bit more she's running for office there we go that's that sorted out our female characters that were so poorly treated in 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 the book but it's not not enough <laughs> it no, still no, doesn't because i mean <laughs> where what you know what ends up happening to her as well and i think it is heavily in even if it's not in the film i think it is heavily implied that that she is assaulted um glad obviously that that isn't included <laughs> otherwise i think i would have very different thoughts about this film um imagine if paul verhoven made it <laughs> jesus christ <laughs> Yeah. You'd have to sit <laughs> through five minutes of this. That would be something. just like, wow, we... <laughs> yeah, it's... when you, If I sit and think about it too much, then it probably just makes me feel a bit worse <laughs> about the film because it's like, you hope that their intentions weren't just to be like, yeah, let's treat these characters as cruelly as possible in the film that they kind of understood this was the world that that they're creating in the film and that's why they are treated in that way but yeah <laughs> i think this yeah, is just a that's how i take it sort of world right like this is he just this is just a world of these people who are just horrible despicable i mean and we i mean this at this point is going to come out in a week but when we talk about um, jackie brown for instance like this is just like these people are gangsters they don't really muck about they don't mm. um so when they when they when they threaten you with violence, then there's gonna be a follow up. There's there, there someone's going to die, and then when you know when people die, it's never pretty, right? So I have a feeling that this is a just a part of this. And so I, I, again, this is this is pulpy writing. So I feel like this is just well, he's, he's, like no one's aspiring to, to like a man Booker Prize on this. Uh, <laughs> but I, I feel like this is just part of it. Like you're, you're like this is a genre experience that you're supposed to just in invest yourself in this world and then it's not supposed to feel great but the um, uh, what's supposed to feel great is uh, at the end of it when you see this kind of just ha- almost have a hollywood ending where the bad guy gets his comeuppance the good guy comes on comes out on top he saves he saves the theory there saves the world and whatever and then i think what makes it interesting in 80s and 70s like is the fact that at the end of it all you still have these sort of this aftertaste because this guy's still a scumbag you know <laughs> so yeah. i don't know mm-hmm. yeah yeah I, I think you're right i think this is just the playground that uh leonard deals in like i think he's writing these noir types of uh stories maybe you know based on like 1940s uh types of you know scams and grifts and double indemnity types of things but in the world of the 70s and 80s, it's the same world where right down the street, you've got hardcore and Scorsese's taxi driver. You know, it's just, mm-hmm. it's almost, it could be the same world, right? So it's, a, it's a, I, I think it's written this way. And yeah, I think it's easy for us to say that it's problematic and it, it is, um, but you know, it's it's of the world and it's it's the playground that the Leonard writes in, I think. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't be able to remake it today, would you? 
<laughs> so it's just well i, I suppose no. <laughs> yeah it's if, i don't know if it, if it hadn't been made at the time that it was it would have or, or just this book would have left been left unadapted because it's just well you, you can't have well you, you can't transplant the, the appeal of the poppy appeal of the book without really enraging a good section of your population for a good reason as well mm. right <laughs> but, but so so i don't know it, it's almost like especially when you consider like when you said this yourself sarah it's like it kind of sits in the middle between the sort of two eras in in cinema as well it's almost a miracle that this thing exists uh even even if like you feel like sometimes you feel like maybe i don't know if it's a good thing that it does but um, and now i have it on my shelf and i have no you know and i kind of you know admitted to liking it so it's kind of like jesus christ what am i what am i doing with my life <laughs> we all it's like it we're film. all in this it's together it's fine <laughs> like, like yeah you got you know we're, it's, it's i feel like this is like this sort of like it's not a roy scheider fan club anymore this is like this sort of like we're just a bobby shy john glover and doreen <laughs> <laughs> it's just like we're all in this together where's leo leo's oh, able like <laughs> it's just this is nicola <laughs> it's just, but you know uh i don't i don't know it's um uh i also lost my train of thought <laughs> um all right it will come back to me but what do you get what do you guys think about john frankenheimer behind the camera on this because we barely talked about him as a filmmaker and as a director i mean well we talked about him very very long in, in the show and we, we we talked about black sunday in 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 here when you know still talk, talking through zoom so if you're if you're willing to go all scroll all the way down through the feed to episode i think number five and just suffer <laughs> suffer through this more than you're suffering now <laughs> go nuts <laughs> But yeah, what do you guys think about Frankenheimer behind the camera on this? Like, how do you, how does he, what does he bring to the table? I like I like Frankenheimer. I there I have a lot of blind spots for mm-hmm. Frankenheimer, but when he puts together a genre film, like I find that he usually does a really really good job of it. Not always, but um, and I know that he had a lot of personal struggles during the '80s as well. And I sort of think this is him coming out of that and getting on track a little bit. Um, because he's in genre and he's doing a good job. Uh, one of the things that I do associate with uh, his uh, films are these picture-in-picture, camera-in-camera shots. So there's a mm-hmm. famous one in Manchurian Candidate. And uh, here, I've, I'll call it maybe this is the second most famous one where there's some celebratory party that's turning into maybe an orgy, maybe a business meeting. You I know, it's and, an orgy. Uh, yeah, uh, but <laughs> it could honest, also be, an and, and he's turning it into a film shoot, and it's just this weird. But I think it's also a celebration too, the party that they're throwing because they're, you know, their scam worked, and this guy's going to pay them money. I think that's the timing there, and they're just sort of everyone's happy, but no one happier than John Glover walking around with this uh, huge honking camera with a in live feed. And in his, yes. <laughs> But he's got this camera with a live feed into a couple different monitors that are on the set. And it's such a dynamic shot. I really find this shot interesting because he's walking around in different rooms and you see cameras and and what's showing up on the monitor is his direct feed. And, you know, actors are sort of playing to the camera and watching themselves on the, the monitors. There's something that, like, that Frankenheimer must clearly enjoy because he's done that a number of times. And uh, anyway, so to me, that's what jumps out is like, this is, this is Frankenheimer, this, this shot, because I think he really loves that type of mm-hmm. shot, but, but also it's him doing genre and tension quite well. 
So those are the the Frankenheimer bits that that jump out to me. Yeah, I think this might be the first Frankenheimer film I've seen. Oh, so, what a way to start! Uh, wow, <laughs> woo! What an entry point. Uh, so I don't have much to to compare it to, but I did like the way it was filmed. It's it's got quite a handheld quality in in a lot of places, and I think that that sort of adds to that gritty kind of scuzzy authenticity that I that I think this this film is going for. It needs to look a bit rough around the edges, I think, to suit the kind of film that it is. If it was too slick and too sleek, I don't I just don't think it would work for the type of film that it is. So I mean, as a entry point uh, to this director, then. <laughs> I liked what I saw uh, in terms of how it was in how it was shot, and it's certainly sort of fitting the type of film that it is as well. I'm looking forward to watching Black Sunday. That will be one that we watch at some point because it's uh, mm-hmm. Robert Robert Shaw, oh, my yes, boy. Yeah, yeah. boy. <laughs> well, you know, so. when when you do, you know, you know, I'm on the docket to uh, guest on this, right? Because this is like yeah, one of my I... favorite films of all time. You're already on my spreadsheet. Don't worry. <laughs> you know, like, I'm not gonna let this go. Like, if you know, this is. This is a deal breaker for me. <laughs> Fourth War should be in there for another uh, Shider one too. Fourth Might War? have to add oh, it to yeah. the list. Yeah, it's there not on there currently, the but it's uh... <laughs> season four of Shy- <laughs> uh, of Shider in, in the Jaws for a minute post Jaws history. Because <laughs> there's so many cool things. I mean, Night Game as well. I mean, you should you should do that. It's like a VHS sort of situation. Like I don't know, it just brings me back to my days of you of you. My salad days. <laughs> I, I love your mention, Sarah. I love your mention of the lighting. Just to mm-hmm. launch off of that, because um, noir was known for its lighting and its shadows and all these mm-hmm. types of techniques with shadows from brims of hats and blinds. Um, but in the in the eighties and nineties, so these noir types of efforts had to concentrate on if you want that aesthetic, what's that look like in the eighties? And we just talked about um, Millish Crossing and Blood Simple and Blood Simple very uniquely brought neon into it and used neon as this interesting, you know, color scheme, but it sort of worked for making it a noir. What I think you're hitting on here is I think that the lighting, like there's all these great moments where there's just a flashlight or the, a, a one swinging light hanging down and that's creating the lighting of, for the scene. Mm-hmm. And I think that works very well in creating this noir type of aesthetic where the scene, the composition is, dominated by shadow and darkness but also it's it's grainy and it's gritty and like you say i think that's a really good take that really works for this type of film because this is gritty and grainy and dirty and sort of slimy and Mm -hmm. i I think that that's quite possibly a very specific choice by frankenheimer Uh, yeah it works really well yeah there's some quite um like 80s feeling stuff as well with a lot of seeing Roy Scheider like reflected in like the TV screen like when he's watching the 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 videotapes I just I love that you can sort of like still see his face so you're seeing him react to what he is seeing even though it doesn't the camera then doesn't like flip to him the obvious obvious thing would be show what's being shown on the screen and then sort of like cut to him reacting to it but we see him reacting it's just his like reflection in the in the tv screen and i it does that i think both times so when he's watching the video of of him uh with cine the sort of the you know frolicking around Uh, and then like the Mm -hmm. they do it in both i think and when 
she's being killed as well and obviously the, but the lighting in both is like completely different it's obviously much much darker when he is watching the the video of of her being killed so it does some very interesting things with that we get a little bit of the noir kind of like blind um shadows the you know you know what i'm talking about you don't know yeah. <laughs> the shafts of light yeah yep I think a, yeah, a lot, a lot, a lot is owed to something like Blade Runner as well, especially in the eighties, mm. to the sort of aesthetic kind of making it a way to modern day, right? The sort of mm-hmm. the transition from the forties to the eighties is kind of like I see shafts of light. I see when, whenever I see in the eighties the um, like light having a texture, as in like when you know there's a beam of light because it, the light's kind of shining through some dust that's just hanging in the air. You feel Ridley Scott immediately, right? At least that's how I that's how I kind of just immediately connect the dots. And then to your point, when you were just saying, well, there are these reflections everywhere. And this is, I don't want to say this is a Frankenheimer thing, but this is just an error thing as well, where, because these people are just shooting on location. Like this is not a soundstage, right? Like they just rented a house <laughs> to do this. In. And then the house is just, well, the bedroom's just small. So if you sit there with your camera on your shoulder with this, I don't know, 20 millimeter lens, so like, I don't know, fairly wide lens, and you still have, you don't have room to maneuver. So you, you either have to pan furiously, just like right to Roy Scheider and left to Alan Ramey. And then just, meanwhile, the, the viewer is going to just get vertigo, right? So... <laughs> Like something I remember from some, something like, uh, let's just say Bullet, for instance, where they just film in these um, very cramped San Francisco apartments and Yates always made use of mirrors like an absolute boss. So you'll see like the character, may, like you'll see character's face, but the character's face is in a, in a mirror reflection that's reflecting off the one wall on another mirror. There's just mirrors everywhere. And it just, and just adds space to these things. And like your comment on, the TV screen is just a clever way. I think this is just Frankenheimer, who, a guy who worked from like the 50s onwards. He's like Sidney Lumet almost, like the guy who just saw it all, right? He saw, he he was in the golden age and then he saw it end and then he was part of the new Hollywood and he saw it end and then he was there as well, right? Um, <laughs> so I feel like this is, this is this sort of, um, I think the Frankenheimer touch is just the, the guy who just knows how to shoot on location and he just makes these sort of clever decisions things like Spielberg would also do these things. Like he would just like bounce, bounce certain images off the, of, of mirrors because it just makes more sense without moving the camera too much, especially that the camera is handheld most of the time, which I, I know, to me, this is also like this, this, yeah. No, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say Frankenheimer. And oh, no, no. Some... I, was just, I was just saying that for, for me, this was like, um, that, you know, like the, his way of taking off the camera off the tripod was, was modernizing noir as well, because it was just like, let's make it a little bit more immediate. Right. Anyway. Yeah. And, and you're mentioning Sidney Lumet um, reminded me like Frankenheimer and Lumet, they both got their starts, if I'm not mistaken, working in television mm-hmm. back in the, in the fifties, whenever most television was filmed live so I'm just sort of making some connections here because he's taking some of those techniques like shooting live TV and having monitors all over the place. Um, he's using some techniques or elements that he liked about that dynamic. And he's using it in Manchurian Candidate where you see, you know, live footage coming from, you know, cameras. You see it on monitors and, and you see the action live around it as well. The same that we, we get in this um, orgy slash party slash party. Do you think they shoot? actually happened to be at an orgy and they just filmed it? <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. I think Frankenheimer is fairly 
uh, structured with a schedule. But again, I don't know. Wasn't Do you think Golan and Globus are just like we're party animals and they're just like. <laughs> yes. We arrived at Just, <laughs> just uh, Hollywood again, right? Just Yeah, this this was the after party. This was an Jesus. scene. <laughs> Goodness. <laughs> This is just John, how John Glover was uh, was carrying himself, and they just filmed him. <laughs> so. Yeah, he's a tour de force here. He's something else, and uh, I don't know. Maybe he's one of those one of those uh, guys who sort of frames the '90s villain, which we have come to talk about quite a bit. Like those over animated types of guys. Like a Nolte is also not Nolte. Um, uh, Gary Busey is another guy. Yes, Gary Busey. It's another one. It's perfect. It's and perfect. it's sort of these yes. types of John Glover and Gary Busey. And <laughs> they sort of end up giving us these over the top 90s villains, which we all come to love. But uh, yeah, mm-hmm. here's here's one of the first 90s villains, we'll say. Sport. Wow. <laughs> hey, sport. Hey, Slim. Hey, Sport. <laughs> I mean, if it wasn't for the for the fact that I know this character is such a despicable person, I, I just think like, should I incorporate Hey Slim into my vernacular just, just because? <laughs> and I'm just thinking, this would make me a horrible human being, because, uh, yeah. But anyway, um, I have a feeling. I don't know. I have a feeling we've done this movie justice. I don't know what you guys think, but it, I think it's time to kind of just wrap this up. Unless you get have something else to to get off your chest. Oh, I know. I have something I need to get off my chest. This is something I I, I lost my train of thought on. And when you say this is um like a let's just say a middle point between two eras, I also feel like I've always had this sort of theory about um Hitchcockian sort of influence on cinema, and then I always saw like R- Billy Friedkin is kind of like a sleazy Hitchcock, and De Palma is a sleazy Hitchcock, and then Verhoeven was kind of like a sleazy De Palma, so he was like a Hitchcock Hitchcock sleazy squared, you know, and then <laughs> and then. This film's kind of like a protoplast of like a Verhoeven thriller. Like if you think about this, this this is a movie that like Basic Instinct kind of traces back to its origin. I think like this this sort of the Hollywood slick '90s steamy erotic thriller starts with movies like this, mm-hmm. and then by extension, it kind of just is an evolution of noir. I don't know. This is something I wanted to get off my chest. I'm not sure if there's a conversation to be had on that, but hey. <laughs> Well, make makes sense in a way, like the bottom rack of the video store, right? That you know these these films pop up there, and this is a bit higher a profile one because of Frankenheimer and Anne Margaret and Scheider. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, I, I I think you're right. And then, but then you have your Fatal Attractions, and you start to get your slivers, body your heat. basic instincts, and body, yeah, body heat, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, oh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, that's what I wanted to say. Anyway, so final takes <laughs> 50 to pick up. Sarah, tell me that you hate this movie now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I still I still really like it. Um, yeah, I, there was a lot more to unpack in this film than I, than I thought there would be. Because as we said sort of at the top, there isn't much to sort of dive into thematically. But I think it's very interesting, particularly to consider what came before and what came after this film and and like we've said many times like what it sort of sits it's sort of sitting in the middle of those things I think is a very interesting thing to consider I think it is a great performance from my boy Roy Scheider it's so good to see him play like quite nasty (laughs) like nasty characters even though he is like 
quote the good guy in this he also isn't uh so when you're some obviously i'm very used to seeing him as as martin brody in jaws this is completely opposite <laughs> of that it's still a guy like trying to do the right thing trying to solve a problem if you will but just going about it in a completely different way and just being that moral gray character i think is a really interesting choice for him i wish this had been the film that had then sort of sent his career upwards again rather than downwards but uh can't go back in time and change change what happened unfortunately yet until i invent my time machine but yeah this is uh it's a hard film to say i enjoyed given some of the the content but i would watch it again (laughs) and i will have to watch it again because it'll be on our uh, jaws for a minute list at some point (laughs) so MJ has something here. Strap yourself in, MJ. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'll give him a heads up. Don't worry. (laughs) This is going to be rough. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. Wow. Randy, (laughs) tell us. Like I said at the opening, this is a film that I liked the first time. I liked it more this time. Um, You know, I, I think that there is an interesting role here for Scheider to take on he's you know getting towards the latter part of his career like it's a very interesting choice that he's playing a lead who basically walks through the film as as if he's a good guy but he's he's got all this moral dirt um that he's carrying around as well I think that makes him an interesting character this is a a film that you know lives in the world of Schrader's hardcore and uh martin scorsese's taxi driver it, you know and it's a it's a suitable noir for this world it it, it works well i really like the dynamic uh and we, we talked about scheider being this alpha you know win at all costs business uh character and you know so he's going to fight back against these guys i love i love those angles i love how he sees the angles and he plays these bad guys i think that's just fantastic John Glover in here. I think he's, you know, a terrific, terrific villain. Um, yeah, so this is just a really strong plot driven film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, it grows even more on me. I think the, the more the more we talk about it, just I, I know there's thematically like you kind of have to really read, right? But then in terms of just interrogating the genre and then how this film sits culturally and then what it what it kind of does where to us as a in let's just say the enlightened 2022 sort of audience that's um let's just say um emotionally attuned to 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 certain uh aspects of cinema that won't nowadays would just well it's just they wouldn't fly um I feel like it's just a fascinating sort of product of its time. And then I would say like, yeah, it is wish fulfillment fantasy for Elmore Leonard. Yes, it is kind of like, you could almost say it's a cautionary tale. It's like if he kept it in his pants, none of this would have happened. <laughs> just saying. It's a good point. <laughs> there's, there's the theme we were looking for. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is a conservative. Keep it in your pants. <laughs> 
It's just a, yes. Stay loyal to your wives, men. Okay, well, yes. pick your yes. pick your partner <laughs> and stand by them, and then just don't screw around because like nothing good ever happens. <laughs> just you know, you pick one, you stay. <laughs> That's all you do. Till till death do us part. This is a very conservative sort of film. Let <laughs> 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 think about it. Anyway, what I was saying, what I was trying to say is, I I really enjoy this sort of idea of okay, well, it, fine, it's an eighties or seventies sort of storytelling about like it's, it's male wishful feminine fantasy, but I I really dig the aesthetic of the film. I really dig how it kind of just it's gritty in just the right way. It's lurid and. Like I know it's it's gonna be a while before I revisit it. Like it's like I know I have like hardcore behind me and blue collar, and I just think to myself like they're brilliant films. I'm I'm not looking forward to revisiting them because of the way they make me feel. But it's just in all in all, it's just a very solid piece of cinema from uh, John Frankenheimer, who I'm whom I really adore, and also Roy Scheider is just coming back from almost the woodwork. So having made just a, a string of films that never, didn't really take off now comes back and just like, look, I can, I'm still here and I'm, I can still kick ass, if you know what I mean. Uh, and we haven't even touched on the ending of the film where there's this massive explosion and it comes out of nowhere. But hey, <laughs> I think we're going to get to it in a second. I think we might. <laughs> uh, yeah. But yeah, overall, I really enjoyed the, the film, even though it's impossible to recommend to anyone without l- really looking dodgy. Like, it's just like, well, you know, like, I might as well just say like, well, after you finish 52 Pickup and you really want to hate me, just what an infomaniac. And then, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, Honey, so, I just finished watching 52 Pickup. I'm going to watch it again. You want to come right now? It's great. Yeah, it's just... <laughs> Like I mean, it's it beats recommending Sallow to unsuspecting strangers, but you know, it's just like yeah, it's, it's my way of telling telling your telling your work colleagues to eat shit, but but just but you know, um, in general, it's impossible to recommend. But I'm super happy I own it, and I'm super happy I've I've this film exists in the way that it does. And then with that, I think it's a good idea to go through our top threes and bottom three so sarah give us your top threes and any honorable mentions if you should if you have some of them on your list what's your top three moments okay. or top moments uh top moments i haven't put this in any kind of order and some of them i have mentioned already mm-hmm. uh but the the shot of Roy Scheider watching the the footage I think specifically of when when Cinny is is killed I just think is just a really great scene <laughs> in terms of how it plays out seeing the horror on his face but through the reflection mm-hmm. in the screen I think is just so effective and then his horror and realization when he figures out that he is sat in the chair that he's looking at on on the screen it's such a great reveal it's a great reveal for for us as the audience and it's a great reveal for him and really shows the range of Roy Scheider as well like going from these like small uh sort of changes in expression to then just this big kind of like moment of just real horror when he sort of Mm -hmm. realizes that he is sat in basically where it happened um my <laughs> my other best points are really stupid. Uh, well, one of them is anyway. Really enjoyed uh, some of the eighties fashion of this uh, of this film, specifically some of Anne Margaret's lovely power suits. Uh, some big old shoulder pads going on early in the film. 
Love Appreciated him. that. Uh, <laughs> the higher the shoulder pads, the closer to God, I guess. Uh, something <laughs> like that anyway. Um, my, Temple of fashion. Uh, I do have another... <laughs> I do have another sensible one, which is that scene that we've sort of spoken about, the uh, possibly uh, documentary of the orgy slash party that they uh, went to. It's a very weird choice. <laughs> Just not obviously as like, in terms of how it is filmed, not as in like, oh, I really enjoy this. <laughs> Especially after going like, I want to say multiple rounds of like, you know... <laughs> This is very unkind to women, you know? And it's just like, I really yeah. enjoyed the orgy. <laughs> just Obviously, all this orgy was solid. <laughs> not enjoying actually what is uh, what is going on, but in terms of the way it was filmed, I appreciated that. The sort of like the showing of the the people on the, the, the monitors and sort of, like act, acting up like for the camera and stuff like that. <laughs> This just is, sounds bad now. Doesn't this it? is like Roger Ebert reviewing pornography. It's just you know, like the camera work on this is amazing. <laughs> really liked the way it zoomed in on that particular breast. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, look how he keeps everything in focus. This is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> You're this, making me this look bad now. Stop this it. porn owes an awful lot to the Manchurian Candidate. I'll say that. There you go. Yeah. Look. <laughs> A sentence no one has ever said before. So. <laughs> well, we're here to break new grounds. And then... Yeah, yeah. From a filmmaking standpoint, I enjoy the way that that seemed. <laughs> I'm digging myself a hole now. We're going to stop. Uh, honorable mention: Roy Scheider topless in the pool. There we go. On That's brand. fair enough. <laughs> he's, he's very wiry. <laughs> it's just you know. Do you know what? He gets. I, I'm sure he gets more handsome as he gets older. Like when he's got a little bit of like a little bit of white around the temples, a little bit of snow on the roof. It's oh yeah, because he good, never got a strong the, look uh, from a man. He never got the sort of salt and pepper. He would he would be sort of like white on the on the sides, sort of like a yeah. very sexy look. Like I don't, I don't like. I'm not gay or anything, but but I'm just thinking like <laughs> this guy. You know, this is the longest hair off. I think I've seen yeah. with him too. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think it's his hair? Or did he put a put a wig on for this? <laughs> just saying, just asking, just, just you know. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, Roy, Roy Scheider just you know he's the bomb. <laughs> anyway, Randy, mm-hmm. what do you think about Roy Scheider? Would you bang Roy Scheider? Anyway. <laughs> so, such a peach, this guy. <laughs> what have I done? What have I started? <laughs> Well, actually, interestingly, uh, my first honorable mention is the one and only Roy Scheider doing nothing short of a handstand. We see this on the video. He does a handstand and then he sort of flips down and jumps into the pool in a dive. And I'm like, this guy's like 55. Like, oh, my God, I'm sort of impressed. So do you think he planned this himself? Like he's like, John, do you want to see a trick? Just put your camera on. (laughs) Yeah, probably. Watch me frolic. Because that's sort of a cool little moment. Anyway, well, do so you think was... he started with "It's showtime, folks," and then he just did this stuff? <laughs> You're going to need a bigger lens. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. My second honorable mention is when Roy Scheider. He has gotten information at this point where he might find this Alan Ramey and he find he knows that he runs a porn theater. So he goes to the porn theater and he goes into the lobby and the young lady who's working there, he has this 
great little small talk with her. <laughs> so, is the movie any good? And she looks at him like, who is this guy? Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> she Five dollars. <laughs> I thought she was just great. Where's Alan? He's out back. You have to. You want to go see him, don't you? Yeah, five dollars. I thought she was great. Is the well, movie any good? You know, it's beautiful. She's not being paid for you know, like letting people in for free. <laughs> I want to see. If, like, do you know, uh, do you know how many how many perverts just walk in and think? Can I go and see Alan and just watch the film instead? Yeah. <laughs> and then they walk in and there's James Caan on the like listening to the radio. And <laughs> <laughs> yes, and De-, De Niro with a date. Yeah, it's all in the it's it's like a sort of the sleazy sort of cinematic universe and then just like and they met leo because he had to evacuate after george george c scott demolished the porno theater somewhere else (laughs) yeah it's the the scu the sleaze cinematic universe totally yeah Yeah, that's why it's on my tops this is great she's she's great great porn theater employee (laughs) (laughs) beautiful five dollars okay uh Number three, I really like the scene where uh, Bobby Shy kills Leo. He shoots him through the window and the window smashes. And then Leo walks away and he walks right into the camera. And I sort of wonder if this is um, referenced in uh, Cape Fear because uh, Bobby walks right into the camera. And it's sort of the way Max Cady walks out of jail. And in, mm-hmm. anyway, also in this scene, you have these cars that are hitting one another in behind. I just thought that was just sort of a great, great moment. Um Number two, the scene where between uh, Roy Scheider and Anne Margaret in Sh- where Scheider confesses, and you mm-hmm. get some of this dialogue that's driven by Anne Margaret, and both both actors get great dialogue in here. How old is she? You know, why did why did you tell me? Why did you tell me? That was a great moment, right? Like, there's a lot going on in their relationship, and it sort of goes back to their loyalty to one another not as uh, marital partners, but as business partners. And I just think mm-hmm. that it's just such a great, well-crafted scene. Um, and number one, this, this, the second video scene, the second video blackmail where they uh, reveal that they, they kill Cine. I think it's just great. And then uh, Sarah, you mentioned this, the reveal, the second reveal, because it's a very stunning scene, but then when you get a little bit more light and he realizes he's at the scene of the crime, it's just sort of a great, great moment. Mm-hmm. Well shot. That's my number one. No, it's, it's going to be a bit of an echo chamber then. <laughs> okay, I've got... Uh, <laughs> the girl I'm, at the I, porn theater, I know, right? I, I know, right? No. Okay, well, <laughs> but, honorable mention to uh, Bobby Shy's jump scare when he just jumps out of the closet like Michael Myers. <laughs> <laughs> and I just nearly crapped myself watching this. This is just... Because it comes out of nowhere as well. It's just great. Um, okay. The final explosion, just another little small mention. Then it's just like, I think to myself, like, well, we have $2 million left in the budget. Can we just spend this all on C4? Thank you. <laughs> it's like a very, it's, it, it feels like, I mean, you haven't seen Black Sunday, so I don't want to spoil things anyway. But just the ending is kind of just like this, these pull-out shots and there's just the fireworks. It's just, I don't know, I just found it, found it familiar. And I'm just thinking to myself, this is John Frankenheimer just blowing the rest of the budget. <laughs> it's just kind of like, we're getting rid of the car, so we might as well. <laughs> um, okay, well, number three for me is kind of a slash because it's it's a bit of a cop-out because I, I really wanted to to just say John Glover is my top three just in general as a as a human being but uh, I want to say that there are two sort of scenes 
so one that comes after when Joe Roycheiser goes into the cinema and he asks if the, if the movie's any good because he goes and confronts him because he has this $10,000 that he wants to give to someone. He needs a confirmation of who this person is because he only saw them like wearing these stockings, which is just the best way to, car- to, to carry yourself as a bank robber, right? Um, That's how I do it. Well, I know. <laughs> It's just, I can't remember what film this was, but someone was wearing fishnets. Like, I can see your face. (laughs) Wild at heart. Wild at heart was, yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, yeah. Uh, But this is kind of just slash with the the scene where John Glover's character, Alan Remy, goes into Mitchell's office and then they... He opens the book and then you can see how he is in his element and he's just... He's well, you know, he's intimidating when he's shouting, but he's also intimidating when he's in this quiet. He just take, puts his glasses on and he's just like, I know what this is. And just like, and you're almost, I, I was in more mortal fear of him. And again, because I realized how smart this guy is, it's just, it's just bizarre to me. Uh, so number two is Mitch admitting everything to his wife. This whole conversation when she sits there just sinking into her armchair, just seething with rage and also hurting. And we, on Margaret, I mean, I don't think I've seen her in anything, but the 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 way she pulls it off, this performance in there, is just brilliant. And Roy Scheider is not too shabby either. Like the Roy Scheider is commanding the scene, and he's fighting for for this command with this woman. It's just amazing. See, like the sort of the I don't know the power dynamic in there is just brilliant. Great scene, and the best. Uh, I mean, my note is just the cinema, which is the second reveal. So when the murder scene, well, the only thing I would say probably it's a bit a gratuitous when they just take the uh, Cine's blouse off and then for some reason show her breasts as they're supposed to humiliate her. But I'm just saying to myself, like, this is one thing that you probably could have avoided in just like in terms of like being gratuitous, right? Because you don't like, you can just as well kill the woman and then just, you know, just spare me the nudity. Um, but uh, overall, this whole scene went to sort of, the light flickers, you can't see anything. Everything, I think it's either in shadows or these beams of light and there's a reflection somewhere and then you realize where he's sitting is just, just the best. What a scene. What a picture. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of killing. Uh, anyway, bottom threes, anyone? Sarah, what's your bottom three moments? Uh, the orgy scene. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> It's both the just, best and the, the worst. Just Very the well shot. Just the orgy aspect. Not, the, not the way it was filmed. <laughs> just the orgy. Yeah, yeah. There we go. The right, the wrongs of my uh, my previous ones. Um, this is really nitpicky, but it's when Roy Scheider's character is out in the desert somewhere, and they're I don't know what they're doing. Something to do with his business. Uh, whatever it is they're doing right (laughs) they're doing business um and it sets up what could be like a really great shot where they're sort of looking through this like rectangle shaped Mm -hmm. window and it would just be a really cool shot if it just went like as if the camera was going through the window and it goes like up and over and i was like ah missed opportunity that could have been a really would have killed it yeah (laughs) spielberg would have crushed it um i just it's one of yeah super nitpicky like i said but i was just like oh that could have been a cool shot and then it wasn't um the i don't want to be unfair to the female actresses in this but i did find some of 
their and I mean this is to be the direction that they're given but some of their acting just a little over the top and oh it's coming yeah (laughs) (laughs) when they're sort of like being you know being attacked or being hurt where there's a lot of kind of like flailing and like kicking legs around wildly and all this sort of thing and it just again is one of those aspects that again is like dramatic unnecessary yeah like unnecessarily cruel as well it's like not only are the characters being cruel towards the women like they really are like making a meal out of it and it's like Mm -hmm. i don't want to put that on them because again they were probably told that that's the way that they needed to behave in those scenes Mm -hmm. but it's a bit like okay uh did i have another one (laughs) uh my other one is just like uh a lot of female nudity, uh, not the same balance of male nudity. So that's would my- you- <laughs> <laughs> Well, I believe in a fair and balanced world. I believe. <laughs> I mean, there is a lot I- of John John Glover's speedo. There's that. What? What? I think what we're trying to say it's. Maybe there is a lot of John Glover speedo, but there's not enough junk Glover. <laughs> or, 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 I mean, we haven't seen Roy Scheider's package, if you know what I mean. <laughs> His package. Thank you for French. The gender equality sort of act needs to be sort of enforced in there. <laughs> anyway. Well, just. Yeah, it's <laughs> that's just me being silly as well. But yeah, it's reinforcing that like women as objects to be looked at, leered at, sort of thing, and mm. not it's not necessarily that it's like oh because we've shown some boobs now we need to show male nudity as well. It's not sort of like one to balance the other, but it's just like if you're in this sort of very like sleazy gritty sort of like world it just feels a bit like it's leaning more mm-hmm. towards one way which i guess is like the the power balance in this film isn't it of that the wow. men are the ones who they don't end up in those vulnerable positions or they don't end up sort of being mistreated they're the ones who come out on top at the end but... no but then again you know like you wait a few short years and paul verhoven's right there where you need him <laughs> <laughs> Because uh, he was all about the sort of you know the gen- gender neutral bathrooms and all that, and it's just like, look, here's a here's a penis for you. <laughs> it's just uncalled for, completely, just like out of nowhere. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it's just you know, maybe just male full frontal male nudity is just too more too involved, and it's just there's too much on on display. It's just like, wow, I, I have to you know, I have to pass all this now. <laughs> <laughs> it's so rare in film as well. It's just like it's just not. Yeah, um, unless Harvey Keitel's in it, you know. <laughs> but then again, well, but then again, he's crying and he's on drugs. Not a pretty picture. Yeah. Still, no, it's not... <laughs> I can't forget it. Thanks, Abel. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> and and Jane, don't we get that in the piano too? Oh Jesus! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whew. Anyway, on that note, Randy. <laughs> What's your favorite top, top three on. full frontal male nudity moments that you wish this film had? 
I, I have a couple mini things. They're not really negatives because I really like this film, but a couple little things that I I wonder, and you know, you guys might even have answers to this, but what kind of person has an outline on his pegboard for every single tool? I thought that was sort of weird. Well, I'm an obsessive compulsive person who rents out his tools to his neighbors and he needs to remember who got who who gets what he <laughs> yeah just, who got the just like well did you put the hammer inch. away did you put it where where it was supposed to go <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, so anyway, i, I bet you he has his own armchair that he's he's only allowed to, to sit in like he's, yeah he's the asshole anyway. parent <laughs> I thought that was just sort of a, a weird production sofa. design yeah <laughs> He's probably in his his very own armchair in that that scene with uh, his wife. But she knows her place, and he knows his. Like, come on, yeah. Everyone's got assigned seating in this relationship. Um, I thought this was a little odd, and we didn't mention it as much as we talked about the the orgy party celebration, whatever that scene is. John Glover's porn director eye patch. That's odd, isn't it? So maybe like he's a pirate. Arr! Like I, I don't know. It just felt weird to me. Um, so anyway, I those this are was my just not to be distracted little... when he's looking through the viewfinder, right? I don't know. Don't, don't most people just close their eyes? They need an eye patch. And anyway, I felt like he was this weird porn pirate. But anyway, I, <laughs> I digress. <laughs> so and this um, is a soundbite. If I ever heard one. He's just a porn <laughs> pirate. <laughs> so this is just a little nitpicky thing, but the second video that they show actually has close-ups and slow-mo of the gun being shot. And I thought that was sort of weird. I don't think that... I don't think filmmakers. Alan, you know, they put, they I know, but I evidence. don't think Alan is putting that production value into it. So that was, <laughs> I think that was done uh, by frankenheimer for the audience that was not done by alan so that just sort of something i thought was weird and jumped out to me um kelly preston god love her soul um she passed away a couple years ago mm-hmm. i think this is one of her first film roles i think she was in christine was her first film role and then i think this might have been her second at any rate a very early kelly preston role um there's a scene where she's sharing and crying with doreen and i don't think she's the greatest but further the whole scene doesn't really do anything like I forget even what she's going on and on about but it's not a scene that does anything for her character it's just she's really sad I think and Doreen is comforting her I, I just don't think we need that scene and uh, it may even it could be argued that that sort of would further you know f- further illustrate our discussion on well, the female characters, except for Anne Margaret, aren't even given you know good scenes or good roles. Like it's just a scene that I would just as soon be mm-hmm. cut cut out. Mm-hmm. And then my number one is as much as I love Anne Margaret in this, and as classy as she is, as great as the role is written, it comes to a point. It sort of ends, and she spends the last 10, 15 minutes as a damsel in distress, to the point that she was actively engaged in with with the idea of. Uh, you know, Harry, you've put this family in trouble and now I'm at risk all because you couldn't keep it in your pants. Like what is going on? And then a couple scenes later, she's just sort of casually chilling, swimming laps. Oh, I got to do my 50. And she's not showing that she's, you know, (laughs) cares about her. (laughs) Yeah. She doesn't show that she cares about her safety because, you know, these guys broke into her house before, you know, it, it just seems that, all of her concern and her proactive nature and, you know, her, her tough, strong woman, it goes away in the last 15 minutes. 
and uh, that was sort of disappointing. Wow. Okie dokie. Now my turn. <clears throat> uh, okay, I've got a few, few small ones, few big ones. Okay, well, small ones. Just, there, there's a scene. Okay, well, there's a scene, and this is Blink and you miss it, in the kitchen where they're talking just before anything can, I think it's in the beginning of the film almost, I think Roy Scheider is talking to his to, to his wife, to Anne-Margaret, and then the camera pans away as he's leaving the kitchen and he stops while like while he's still in the shot like instead of just leaving the frame and you can see just like oh i finished my thing but he's still in the cameras just like this sloppy filmmaking john glover would have killed that with his pornographer acumen (laughs) 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 um so okay and then okay i've got another small one but and then i have two big ones okay another small one is bobby shy aiming at john glover's pp with his gun just Like, what a weird piece of direction. <laughs> Josie means business. Like, all we needed to do is just, like, just gently just... <laughs> just nudge it. <laughs> like it was an earlobe or something like this. You know, like, hey. <laughs> just, anyway. so, but, and the two ones uh, really have problem with, problems with. So, vanity talking in her sleep. Just, just like what a terrible shoddy acting. Jesus, kill me now! Like I'm just, I'm thinking, like I'm now, I'm now living vicariously through Bobby Shy, who's trying to strangle her with his with his pillow. <laughs> <laughs> just like, just make it stop. Um, and then the worst thing is just something that I know why it's there because it's in the book, but it's not in the film, and it's just completely just like, this whole explosion in the end. I mean, the explosion I like because it's an explosion. Hey, but the whole conceit of like rigging the car with a bunch of explosives that come out of nowhere. You don't even know. I think the only connection to the car is because John Glover says, like, I like your car <laughs> at the beginning or something like that. <laughs> and that's the only connection it has to the car. And then he goes in the car and then just traps him. And he and Mitch recorded a tape to say something to him. <laughs> it's, just, uh, it's just like, I know, because in the book, they go, there's a whole again a whole sort of mini story on like he's trying to procure a, a briefcase that will look exactly like the briefcase that he has the money in so he's going to do a switcheroo and then he's going to have explosives that he has uh for his job or somewhere because like it's again a blink and you miss it scene it's just like they're blowing something up you don't know why because like it's just like what are they doing that they're making a coating of some description i don't care they're wearing hard hats i don't get it <laughs> but then this whole scene of just like this this Con- the, he turns his car into a contraption because I think we've now like we've, sh- we've showed him working on his car twice, so he, he's quite the whiz, I suppose. Right with his car, <laughs> and he just turns his, turns into a ticking time bomb, and he just make, gives him like a little sort of tape, just hi, hi, Alan, do you know me and whatever. It's just like <laughs> Jesus, like the like I, I get the explosion is great, and they're just walking away because cool guys don't look at explosions, but the whole co- just build up to it is just ridiculous. Like on that's a whole different level. This is canon films, ridiculous. And that's it. That's that's my pet peeve of this film. That's my pet peeves. Like there's real like four of them, and then just like I, I still can't forget about Bobby Shy just pointing a, a, a gun on this the guy's wiener for some reason. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, we've done it. The film's available on Blu-ray and DVD. I'm not sure if you can... You can probably stream it on like Shudder or Arrow. Arrow, Arrow channel is probably, will, will probably have it. So for like $4.99, we'll probably be able to watch it. But I, I thoroughly recommend the Blu-ray. Like, come on. Live a little. Spend some money. 
Sorry, it's, it streams on Tubi in North America. Oh, there you go. It's on Tubi. So and then you stream on Tubi and then just import the Arrow Blu-ray because the this <laughs> pres- the transfer on this is just amazing. Mm. Mm. Arrow is just such a great company. I love these people to bits. Anyway, yeah, it's such a cool cover as well. I really enjoy the artwork on it. It's mm-hmm. uh, like the alternative poster for it. It's very very cool. I, I like how Arrow is always considered when they, when you realize I don't know I don't like this sort of postmodern thing. You flip it over and it's the poster. Mm. <laughs> but you know, like I don't I don't know. Bef- by the way, before I watched it and before I read the book, I thought the fifty two pickup would re- somehow refer to a car, like a pickup from nineteen fifty two. No, it's a card oh. game apparently. <laughs> oh, do you not know fifty two pickup? No, is this like a po- variation of the of the poker game? Do, do you know it, Sarah? Yeah, it's like a like a prank game, isn't it? Oh, is it? Yeah. Yeah, you you say to someone you want to play fifty two pickup, and then you throw the cards at them, and then you say go pick them up because there's fifty two. No, is that what it is? That's that's what it is. I, I think it's the loose references that um, the world Roy, Roy Scheider's world here is sort of vicariously like a stack of cards that's going to fall. Like I think that's sort oh. of because um, Elmo Leonard does not make a mention of this. Like this is just in the title, <laughs> and it's just yeah. like why, what is happening? Like in in Rum Punch, the Rum Punch makes an appearance as this. This is a, like a code name for all the Robbie's like big heist or whatever. It's just like for, and it's just dro- name dropped just casually somewhere in conversation. It's like, ooh, this is the title of the book. It's great. <laughs> or like you know, like oh. You know, he's going to disappear. He's going to be totally out of sight. I'm like, yeah, I see what you did there. <laughs> but, you know, in here, it's just like, I know where to be seen. I didn't quite know. I was just like, where's the pickup? What's going on? Like, what is that the car? I don't know. <laughs> 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 yeah. So anyway, so I think we've done it. I think we've done this movie justice, uh, even though it may have been squirmy at, at, at times. <laughs> uh, Sarah, where can we find you and your work? How about that? Uh, yeah, you can listen to uh, my podcast, which is called Let's Jaws for a Minute. Uh, we were going minute by minute through Jaws. So if you want to listen to us talk about the greatest film uh, of all time in more detail than you have ever required, uh, those episodes are still available to listen to. And we are now kind of moving on uh, exploring the influence of Jaws, the other films from Spielberg, other films from its stars. So we will cover 52 <laughs> Pick Up again at some point uh, in the future. I'll get to talk about it again. That'll be fun. Um, but yeah, it's it's fun and exciting now sort of talking about, as much as we love talking about Jaws and we do on every single episode still, uh, sort of talking about other films and looking at, particularly as we're at the moment going through Spielberg's films that kind of immediately followed it uh looking at how he evolved as a as a filmmaker has been been particularly interesting so yeah you can find that wherever you find podcasts um just let's jaws for a minute and you can follow me on twitter at sarah buttery and you can also subscribe to their patreon (laughs) yes please (laughs) lots of fun bonus content do it uh, do it they're a good show do it (laughs) do it now thank you <laughs> Get to the chopper no it's seriously um uh, this is amazing it was our pleasure to have you to have you over here to talk about orgies i suppose, <laughs> I suppose. thanks because nicolo just won't 
pissed. Yeah, Nicholas just <laughs> <He> refused. Too, <laughs> it was too much of a prude, and he was like, "No, I'm sitting this one out because this is making me blush. I'm sorry." <laughs> no, he's just busy because he's editing a film. Um, um, yeah, Randy, where can we find you and your stuff? You can find me at home in the dark, waiting for power restoration post Fiona. But if you happen to be online, you can find me on Twitter at Randy Burroughs, and you can find me on Letterboxd at Brad7, and you can find, uh, sometimes I'll do articles that you'll find on clapperltd.co.uk. And I will mention, just because I know my voice sounds a little bit different on this show, I am not at home in the dark. I am at a good friend's house, and I will plug their efforts. They sell pottery all across the world. You can find them at islandstoneware.ca. They do some great work, and they gave me this office to work from so that I could watch you guys and talk with you guys about Roy Scheider and John Glover's Speedo. Fabulous. And so you can also find, yeah, you can find Randy next sitting in the dark reading Cormac McCarthy because, you know, <laughs> it's just what you want to do to to pick yourself up after a massive hurricane. Yes, you know, counting down <laughs> until until descent into cannibalism is on the cards. <laughs> <laughs> and you can find me, talk about film Twitter, Yakov Flash Letterboxd, flashfilm.com, clapperltd.co.uk, and also follow the show at Uncut Gems Pod everywhere which is twitter instagram facebook and tiktok and um, um yeah, tiktok's a bit dead now isn't it i mean I, and i'm afraid of, actually of using tiktok because i saw these documentaries and they're just scary people just taking my data everyone i don't know this whole tiktok experiment should probably come to a close <laughs> <laughs> i don't know what a bombshell <laughs> There could be some really interesting. There could be some really interesting reels for TikTok from this particular recording. Just there, there could be. Yeah. I mean, oh, no, <laughs> I can remember that that time we all, we went viral with the Alfred Molina uh, reel from from the Species episode, and then we almost got banned from TikTok because there's half a boob hanging out in there, <laughs> which was covered. <laughs> it was covered. Yeah. And there's no. There were just. And weirdly enough, this was just like liked by a lot of men in the Middle East. And I have a feeling that their mums have found out. <laughs> <laughs> reported us to Twitter. Reported us to the phone. What a way to go. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so TikTok is also where you can find our stuff and uh, reels from the show. Uh, also subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com slash uncutgemspod, where you'll find extra bonus podcasts from us. So bonus tie-ins, mini retrospectives, and our David Lynch Marathon. And this month, we're in the month of October, we'll be uh, talking... I mean, we already tied into this Elmer Leonard thing with Ombre last month. And then we're also uh, uh, going to be doing a little bit more sort of Halloween-y related stuff later in the month. So Texas Chainsaw Massacre is coming and Suspiria is coming on top of Mulholland Drive as well. Uh, also, if you want to follow, uh, subscribe, not subscribe, so support the show in a different way. If you like, you don't want to spend money every month, but just like if you like, you want to buy us a coffee, you can totally do so at ko-fi.com/uncutjobspot. Or if you don't feel like spending money because the chancellor has not given you a, a tax cut for some reason because you're not totally loaded, then you know you can always leave us a review somewhere and a star rating. That also helps us a lot. So thank you very much uh for staying with us for 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 this uh com- just conversation about orgies and full frontal male nudity being missing in the film <laughs> 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 <laughs>
clearly this is a problem. Uh, <laughs> um, and then, you know, stay tuned for next week as we'll be talking about some more Elmore Leonard. I think a little bit more PG Elmore Leonard, if I remember correctly, because we'll be talking about Steven Soderbergh's Out of Sight. Until then, you have a fabulous day and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>